Welcome to Shelf by Genre, a show about types of literature and the worlds they imagine. This season, we are reading Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, and this episode is about chapters 19 through 29 of The Shadow of the Torture. For a list of content warnings, please check the episode description. I'm Cameron, and with me here in my delightful Dead Guy Cafe are Michael and Austin. Where are all the doors? There's no doors in this place. I'm actually fine with there not being doors. I want to stay here forever. That wall is so big that, to me, <laughs> I don't understand space and time anymore and would be uh, much more confident in myself and my coming duel if there were some freaking doors. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm going to uh, lose all ego and give myself over to the illusion of infinite space and time. I'm going to do a little fat phobia, but then talk about how good <laughs> this dude's food is. <laughs> Where we're going, we don't need doors. Uh, <laughs> I we got we got we got to reel them back in. We got we got to reel these millennials back in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Ghostbusters. Um, <laughs> it's it's genre, y'all. It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Um, hey, y'all ever go to a delightful park? Mm-hmm. Yeah, during golden hour. <laughs> Eternally, yeah. eternal golden hour. Uh, it's good. It's good stuff. Lighten up the gram with my dual picks. Mm-hmm. What would Severian uh, post on uh, on the gram? You think? <laughs> Lots of thirst traps. You think mm-hmm. so? Maybe unintentionally, but that's like Gene decided to make a character who is a walking thirst trap. So. Yeah, at least in his telling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. He, whatever, like the, uh, you know, there's like the old, I think it's initially maybe from Live Journal or Tumblr, but you know, the, uh, uh, you know, writing women characters, breasted boobily thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There is, the, whatever the equivalent of that would be for Severian, that's how Severian is written. <laughs> I think it might still be breasted boobily. I, you know, I actually think. <laughs> <laughs> he he uh, he chested cloakily. He you know, there's something going on. Um, I don't know. Do we have anything we want to talk about here before I read the summary? Uh, well, I mean, we left last time being like, hey, the genre is, is switching. And that mm-hmm. definitely happens here, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're in fantasy mode now, friends. Oh, yeah. And uh, we're building and- a party even more than we were before, it seems. We're going to get a whole party in the, in this episode. If you haven't uh, if you haven't read it yet, you'll get the summary in a minute. But yeah, we got we get a whole crew. Severian went from having zero friends, punching holes in drywall, to uh, a whole social network. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Of people he knows. That's what it's like when you move to the big city. You know, right, it's, it's exactly like, <laughs> like that. These are the first six people I met after stepping outside my house for the first time in my life, and they are my friends forever now. Oh he my hates God. all of them. <laughs> Imagine yeah. uh, uh, this done in the style of like Broad City or Girls. <laughs> God, <laughs> you're right that he hates all of them, but also he wants to sleep with at least two of them. <laughs> 
I do. I do want to see the. Uh, all right, fan art people. You know, you're reading the book. You're getting it I, in the style of a g- girls' season one poster. Ooh, mm-hmm. <laughs> the cast of the book of the new side so far. <laughs> Or even like a, one of the Sex in the City movie posters, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. where they have like everyone gets like exactly uh, equal weight, right? You know, <laughs> due to, to contract negotiations <laughs> or whatever, right? One of those. Uh, it's, it's good, but yeah, it's it's a big city, big fantasy city story now, and uh, yes, he both uh, is annoyed by and wants to have sex with nearly all of these people. <laughs> also, you know, in the fantasy space, more than. Um, more than hey, was that a big woman in the in the uh the cistern where I almost drowned? Mm-hmm. More mm-hmm. than um the talking to your uh your your big alien bodied girlfriend, um you know gray. <laughs> what if a gray was giant? Uh, who also you you're going to need to lead to torture and death. Uh, you know, in a moment, more than any of that, we are in fantasy, the, the world of fantasy cosmology and metaphysics here, right? If you read mm-hmm. the beginning of this book and didn't know it was a rocket ship and didn't pick up on the exultants being a different genetic subvariant or or something, more, you know, if you missed all of that stuff because the the you know the prose can be kind of hard to to parse sometimes. You hit stuff here where you're like, oh, no, okay, this is a science fictional or fantasy universe. There is something there. There is technology unlike what we have available to us today. <laughs> um, and whether that is grounded in some sort of, you know, explanatory uh, measure that explains, you know, how this stuff works, whether this is a, a space of, of you know, poetics uh, and metaphor, mm-hmm. it's up to you, whatever. Uh, but there's some stuff going on here that we can't do. Uh, we just can't, as far as I can tell, make the botanical garden uh, that we see at the beginning of this section work. Uh, if we could, we would be in Star Trek. So mm-hmm. wait, so you're telling me that we don't have flowers that are alive and hate you? No, those we have. Those are actually oh, okay. the part that's real. That's, that's yeah, that's <laughs> like two thirds of them. Mike. I know you don't get outside. I know you're an, in, an indoor boy, Michael. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this on previous shows before, but. Uh, you know, range touch, uh, uh, outdoor content for for indoor people or whatever we say. <laughs> uh, one time ago, but uh, yeah, most flowers actually are trying to trying to get you. Oh, yeah. Okay, they're just slower than these. <laughs> yeah, yes, I, I we'll get there. We'll get to the, the the description of it. We know from the last episode, and if you're reading along, that's great. You probably know more than this, but we know that basically what uh, Severian is doing right now is he has been chased, or not chased. I guess they were in a chase eventually. He has been challenged to a duel using uh, Averns, which are big flowers. And uh, that in and of itself, I, we talked about it a little bit, right? But like that in and of itself is a pretty wild mm-hmm. thing to be going on here, right? And that's a pretty like fantasy ass fantasy thing, right? Of like, all mm-hmm. right, what's a duel? Okay, swords, not good enough. What else do we got? Tridents, not good enough. <laughs> fantasy shit. Okay, flower. Here we go. Uh, you know, it has this like uh, I don't know, just charm to it. I think is really good. And I also think we'll talk about it in a minute, like how it works. But I think that the Averns are cool as hell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every part of them is cool. <laughs> like in the ground, where they came from, how they work when you fight with them. Every part of it is cool. And uh, it, it it almost makes no sense that Severian is able to do any of these things. Uh, again, you got to maybe take it on faith. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you've you know. understand um, the the boy Severian was trained by the Order of Truth and Pen- Penitence. Is that right? What, what's the mm-hmm. the Seekers know, for Truth and Penitence? The Seekers for Truth mm-hmm. and, Pen- and Penitence. That's all. You know, they they, they got him ready. You know, it's like uh, it's like going to to like I almost said summer camp, which it's like going to mm-hmm. arts and crafts summer camp, right? You're not going to learn every mm-hmm. arts and crafts skill, but when the the semester rolls around in the fall, and you get an art teacher who gives you uh, an assignment and says, "Okay, we're going to work with we're going to work with charcoal." Like I didn't necessarily work with charcoal, but I understand the basics mm-hmm. of perspective, and so I'll have a leg up. And so I think Severian, of course, uh, has been. Trained in many other forms of something, and the Avern is just in the mix. Mm-hmm. He's like, this is like a normal thing to me. Actually, exactly. Mm-hmm. You think there's a? You think there's plant torture? Yeah, of course there is. You think you think they got to like uh, you know the journeyman? They got to get in there. They got to hot box somebody out. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, I think that they have to do that. I do. You know what I'm saying? Plant torture. <laughs> Get them really high, and then they're yeah. like, your grandma's thinking of all the times you embarrassed her. <laughs> Door clung block. <laughs> all right. I'm going to read the summary now. All right. So we can, we can get in there. <clears throat> I was accused of being, quote, unquote, a weed guy on Twitter the other day. It's not part of the summary, Wait, by what? the way. But I was accused of being, our, our friend Joel accused me of being a, quote, unquote, weed guy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Care for that? <laughs> uh, just because, listen to the bonus soda, you can find out about why that came up. But just because I watched How High 145 times, where can people listen of, to the bonus soda? You can go to patreon.com slash range touch. It's also down in the description below. You can subscribe, you can get access to a bonus soda. And, uh, you know, we've got uh, one basically for every two episodes of this show that comes out, there's going to be one bonus soda. And I'm going to, I think I'm going to try to cajole this crew into an additional bonus soda. But I'll do that after this episode. Is <laughs> this over. is news for Michael and I. Uh-huh. It, it is. Yeah. It is news. I think I've. I think I've found the way. Anyway, let's go to the summary. <clears throat> Adji explains that the Pellerines are a religious sect who carry around a gem called the Claw of the Conciliator, a religious artifact associated with the Conciliator, who we do not know much about yet. The claw supposedly heals injuries, raises the dead, creates life from dust, and purifies lust. In other words, it has the powers of the conciliator himself. They talk about it a bit, and they go to the botanic gardens. Side note, previous uh, episode ended with them crashing through the cathedral of the Pellerines and then being interrogated by the Pellerines. Back to the summary. The gardens are free and maintained by the Autarch. It is made up of many chambers, each of which is a different bioscape, like a Sega Genesis game. They travel into the Sand World, and Severian is so enchanted by it that he has to be dragged away, although the enchantment is so strong that he has no experience of it and has to be told about it afterward. Apparently, certain suggestible people are attracted to specific bioscapes and get lost in them, and this tells us some things about Severian. Ageo wants Severian to go to the Garden of Delectation, but he opts for the jungle instead. Aegea's gown is immediately torn by a tree branch, and her boob is out. She's mad about it. The jungle is vast, and Severian is angry. So Aegea asks him if he thinks there are answers to everything here, and if that was true, where he was from. Why, what, what, what is that? What does that mean? Why did I write <laughs> I that down? There, there are answers to everything here, and if that was true, where he was from. Oh, yeah, okay. 
here in the summary. This is still the summary, by the way. Uh, they have a conversation where they're determining, well, how do you determine truth? And she says, well, where you come from, can you deter? are things true there? You know, can you determine truth there? How do you determine truth? That's the conversation. I don't know why I wrote it so directly from the thing. Back to the summary. This is a provocation of the reader, as much as it is to Severian. He tells a story that Thecla once told him about Father Inure and her friend Domninia when she was a child. Inure shows the child his mirrors and creatures that can be captured and held within them. He also implies that mirrors allow for transportation across space. He talks about gravity and the speed of light and how mirrors might be used to move something from one place to another. I cannot leave out that Severian tells this story out loud to himself, mumbling the entire time because he didn't think that she wanted to hear the story. Aegean and Severian come upon a hut where a man and a woman are standing with a naked man crouched at the woman's feet. She reads from the Old Testament, clearly a missionary. The naked man is called Isengoma, and he begins to advocate for his own god to her, stating that the proud one, that's the name of his god, would save her if she would allow it. The man talks of Paris and abandoning his former career as an artist. Severian and Aegea leave and go to the Garden of Endless Sleep to find their Avern. They also see an airplane. The Garden of Endless Sleep is a massive lake surrounded by a swamp. It is a burial ground. Bodies are stuffed with lead shot and interred in the lake whose water has properties of preservation. They meet a man who has been searching for the body of a woman, Kaz, for many years. He is searching for her because he believes that her eyes opened in the final moment before she was buried in the lake. They leave him, and almost immediately Severian falls down and drops Terminus Est into the water. He dives after it and catches it, and another arm grabs his own and tries to drag him down into the water. A large man and a small woman with blonde hair drag him out of the water, and everyone plus Aegea stands around while Severian recovers. The man produces a flask, and everyone gets a sip of plum brandy. The man's name is Hildegren, a, profession, a professional excavator, and he takes them across the lake to get the Avern. Later, Severian will recognize that this man was the large man who was with Vodalus and Thea in the graveyard. He points out a small, dark hole in the cliff called the Cave of the Cuman, which the Autarch had put here so he did not have to travel across the world to consult the future. The Avon plant grows on the edge of the lake, and as they get close, Severian suggests that they are from another world. He gets close to the plants, which are covered in sharp leaves and alluring patterns, and realizes he does not know anything about how to select a good one. Hildegrin took the females away from the plants, and Severian thinks it would be foolish to consult a woman on selection. He finally gets one, and ties it to a long stick to transport it to the battleground. He then learns how to use it as a weapon. You hold the plant in your left hand, uh, and you pluck its leaves with your right, and then you throw those razor-sharp, poisonous leaves at your opponent. It is very cool. <laughs> Dorcas follows them out of the gardens, and Aegea tries to make her go away. You know, wait, did I name Dorcas? You did not. <clears throat> Earlier, when there was the large man and the small woman, the small woman's name was Dorcas. <laughs> Dorcas follows him out of the gardens and Aegea tries to make her go away but eventually Severian threatens Aegea with violence if she does not leave Dorcas alone they go to an inn to get dinner before Severian has to do his duel it's a weird place because it takes advantage of unclear zoning laws so it can be located near to the city wall than it should be Aegea keeps trying to have sex with Severian and he keeps looking at her exposed boob which is still out someone leaves a mysterious note under their dinner tray it says the woman with you has been here before. Do not trust her. Trudeau says the man is a torturer. You are my mother come again. 
Severian tries to do baby math to figure out if Dorcas or Aegea <laughs> could have a child old enough to write a note. We learn about the fighting at the Sanguinary Field, and then Severian is rushed over there to do his flower fight. Uh, then present day, ruling Severian takes a break to think through the ethical issues of Monomachy, claiming that when it is banned, it is just replaced with murder, and that the survivors of duels are probably the most prepared to defend a state anyway. Back to the fight, Aegea announces Severian incorrectly at the dueling ground, and he hits her in the face remorselessly. The duel begins, and the Hipparch who challenged Severian to the duel shows up in full armor, which Dorcas says is unfair. She then tells us that Severian is not wearing a shirt. That's right. He's wearing a black cloak, black pants, black boots, no shirt. The opponent refuses to take his helmet off, so Severian pulls a complete badass maneuver and puts his torturer's mask on his face, which seems to be basically a leather domino mask that makes him look like a cross between Conan the Barbarian and that guy from Sailor Moon. Then they start flower fighting, whipping these sharp plants back and forth and even throwing leaves that collide against each other in flight. Then Severian falls down on his back, and everyone around him starts saying that he is dead. Then he sits up, stands up, and picks up his Avern to fight. His opponent runs away. Aegea yells Agilus, revealing as truth the hinted information that this has all been a setup from the start, and that the shopkeepers lured Severian into uh, basically his death. Severian falls asleep and wakes up in something like a police station where a bunch of soldiers give him advice and tell him that they're going to need an executioner soon. Dorcas tells him that the fleeing Agilus hit several duel watchers from his, with his Avern during his escape and was captured. Severian tells her that the note they found in the inn must have been for her, and she intimates that she has no memory of anything before the lake. Severian is called into service to serve as the executioner for Agilus. Aegea and Agilus tell Severian that Terminus Est was too tempting for them and that they had to try to bamboozle him because it was just too expensive, too good of a weapon. Agilus evokes an old law of honor and asserts that a man wronged three times can claim any boon he wants from the person who wronged him. Severian refuses and then rebukes Aegea and counsels Agilus before his execution. Aegea leaves a scrawl of signs and symbols on the floor when she leaves, and that is as far as we read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a journey. <laughs> what a journey. Uh, you left out one little one little thing that we I can left, get I to. left out all kinds of things. No, this is the, just the nature one. of these summaries. No, no, no. You I'm going to do one text. of these and just begin reading the chapter. You That's a good <laughs> idea. Uh, there's there is a there is one character I think who didn't come up who is worth thinking about too, uh, which we can get to later. I can say right now. Say it now. Uh, the guy who's looking for his his dead wife. Oh, I did mention him. Oh, okay. I, just, I, just I just said there was blanked. an old man looking yeah. for his dead wife. Okay. Um. Yeah, I didn't name him though. If you've got the name off off the dome, no, I have the name of his wife. Uh huh. Cass, which is Cass. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this is what I said. Uh, they meet a man who has been searching for the body of uh, a woman, Kaz, for many years. He I is searching like, for her because he believes that her eyes opened in the final moment before she was buried in the lake. You feel free uh, to cut this, Jordan. No, 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 you can leave it in. It's good. <laughs> I, uh, it's good for people to be reminded of the details that matter. <laughs> I don't know that it matters. I just was like, huh, interesting. Well, there's a, you know, this is an interesting thing about these books, right? And a, uh, in, in other instances and in other shows, what we've called, you know, um, the kind of inflationary function of some, um, mm. some works, right? Where it's, uh, you can, let's, you know, take, take a, uh, take a page out, you know, take a bunch of pages, put them on a wall, throw a dart at the wall. 
hit a random paragraph, we could do three and a half hours yeah. on the paragraph, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is a book that is intellectually it feels good right it feels good to do the deep dive on this book and so i you know there are lots of things in here where we could do a lot of talking about it it wouldn't really matter it is important to remind us that that guy does exist and is running around um so i think that that is okay and i think probably when people listen to these episodes you know we've only released one so far and thanks so much for everyone uh who has enjoyed it and thanks for subscribing and listening to the episodes but i i i feel confident that that uh Every single person who reads these books and then listens to these episodes is going to have one or two things where they're like, why didn't they talk about mm-hmm. that? Uh, so, yeah. Sometimes I think, that uh, person is us six seconds after finishing the podcast going, yes. ah, but how did we not talk about blank? That's true. Or it's us, you know, six seconds before ending the podcast and we go, well, we didn't talk about blank, but we did talk about other stuff for two and a half hours. So That's right. <laughs> well, uh, what do we want to talk about for two and a half hours on this episode? Where do we want to start? I think we should start with these gardens. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there are these uh, sisters who they claim they're related to the Kennedys, but we're not really sure about that. <laughs> Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's yeah. raccoons that live in their house. It's wild. <laughs> <laughs> the raccoons are from from all of time and space. Yeah, that's right. They've slipped through the mirrors. Uh, yeah, so, uh, uh, if you're not reading along, then one thing you need to know is that the Dying Earth has some incredible public parks. <laughs> <laughs> the Altark has invested in public infrastructure, um, maybe so that, so that he can trap his enemies in historical <laughs> and ideological spaces from which they'll never, uh, become free. <laughs> But it also gives a great thing to do before your date. So who's to say whether or not it's bad? (laughs) Oh, no, I'm trapped in historical Yellowstone. Oh, boo-hoo me. Oh, no, I'm like, I'm future Stalin and I'm trapped in historical Yellowstone. Oh, no. (laughs) Boo-hoo, future Stalin. Get a life. All right, so real talk. Okay. (laughs) This is a space that is... Bigger on the inside than the outside, seemingly. Mm-hmm. You you walk through the sort of walkways of the garden, uh, which is attended to by another member of the Curators Guild. I believe a different member <clears throat> than the mm-hmm. one we've met before. Excuse yep. me. He also has a name. I can look it up. Uh, sure. Um, who is kind of sad about the fact that an extinct plant species has made its way out of the garden and into the world, de-extincting it, a uh, detail <laughs> I really love, um, uh, and who uh, says, hey, make sure you go look at the ant- the antiquities. That's a cool That's a cool little mini garden. And, and you get the impression, okay, there must be a bunch of wings to this thing. You're like, it's, it's not a botanical garden in the sense that you might find in a, a contemporary city. It's a botanical garden, like almost more like a museum that has a bunch of different breakoffs or an entirely enclosed botanical garden that would have like, here's the tropical flowers, you know, zone. And here's the, like you said, Sega Genesis game breakoffs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, each of those places is a little biome, a little mm-hmm. level that loops. It literally, supposedly you walk through it and eventually you find yourself back return to the doorway or return to the central hallway, you know, as long as you haven't been, it hasn't, it hasn't, you know, uh, uh, captured you by its clarion call. 
Mm-hmm. Um, like, like a little like a Disneylander. Well, like, and that's know. where I was going next. Also, you sometimes hear things that might be in the world or Severian Wonders are sounds being projected to help make the reality seem more convincing, almost as if there's a point at which Severian describes something that feels like he doesn't have the words to say, there's a little speaker under the statue of the Stegosaurus that's <laughs> making the Stegosaurus call that is that help you can be convinced that that thing you see out in the distance is really a, some ancient dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Um, there seem to be a bunch of these places, w- way more than there could be. Uh, and then in the middle of this is where Severian says, and also the Altark and Father Anir have other technologies that twist time and space. Uh, so why not this? Is that all right? Mm-hmm. That's like true yeah. about all the stuff in this garden. Yeah. And there's an ambiguity about whether it, it, the, the same thing you just said, it really matters. There's an ambiguity about whether this space is like uh, so like a Star Trek style holodeck, right? Mm-hmm. Is it a thing you go into that feels bigger on the inside than it than it appears to be uh, or or than it would appear to be from the outside? Or are you actually right. literally being transported to a different place? And or time, not just place, but mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Or is it a combination of the two? You know, are some of them one way and others the other way? Um, and that is deeply ambiguous, and it is constantly undermined, whichever decision you want. If, if you made a decision, this is the holodeck, there are things that are happening here that will undermine that opinion. If you mm-hmm. go in here saying they are being immediately teleported to someone else when they walk through the thing, there are things here that will undermine that exact opinion there it is indeterminate in a, in a really poetic and fun way yeah there's so i mean just to like lay this out uh as a nice clear kind of schema or something like two examples here uh one piece of evidence in the this is all a kind of like disneyland recreation park kind of thing uh pile is that Severian at multiple points uh, notes that uh various trees and plants have like label placards on them <laughs> right <laughs> So mm-hmm. very much like, oh, you are in a, a just a typical botanical garden. Uh, but then the scene where they encounter the missionaries is uh, they, that feels such right. A Severian at least experiences it, it as such or relates it as such that uh, it really seems like, hey, wait a minute. Like we've traveled through time because those people are straight up 20th century people or are, you know, as as Ajia later says, like people get trapped in here. They sort of like the uh, the field of the garden can can trap people who are susceptible to whatever kind of uh vibe the thing has and they will take on the characteristics of that place in time Mm -hmm. uh so we see these people who are like 20th century missionaries um and it's as you said cameron like deeply ambiguous as to whether or not these are but we can talk through this scene sort of more specifically and kind of how it works and how weird this can be uh like it is ambiguous whether or not they have traveled back in time and are now kind of like observing these people while themselves being invisible um or if you know Ajia is right and there's some sort of like uh, a garden madness that takes people mm-hmm. uh i mean and notably too right he looks out the window and sees an airplane fly over like mm-hmm. a, a 20th century you know biplane style mm-hmm. overhead and so it's like well either the sky is mirrors hey hey guys guess what the sky is mirrors <laughs> uh so you know either either the sky is hologram right and this is part of the simulation or whatever 
uh, or that is 3D volumetric real space they're looking up into, and they have somehow moved backward in time. Um, also, there is some question whether their their presence has also been noticed in a sort of indirect way. That they, they mm-hmm. seem to be haunting the place for the yeah. people that they uh, have stumbled upon. Yeah, for for the missionaries, there's a man and a woman, and the the woman is kind of the. Uh, we we've got to convert these you know wh- pagans whatever mm-hmm. and the guy straight up turns around and is like holy shit there's a ghost here yeah <laughs> he yeah. looks di- directly at Severian and he's like I don't know about this guy he's scary as hell <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, yeah but but yeah right it's and it's unclear right like as as Michael said is that uh, garden madness right and they have been absorbed into whatever the fantasy is or is this a another time and place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and sort of specifically uh, the so the the situation the two missionaries Robert and Marie um, are there, and uh, the third person uh, Isen Goma uh, that that word by the way uh, that's a Zulu word. So this I guess implicitly places them in like South Africa or Southern Africa generally. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, uh, they're having this kind of weird talk where she is reading the Old Testament to Isangoma and Robert is kind of out of it. Uh, and he, he something something is clearly up with him. Uh, he's unwell. He's he's very anxious. We have that line about him worrying about uh, uh, his like father and like his education in Paris is like failed career as an artist. All this stuff. Uh, and it's Isangoma and Robert who are both aware of uh, Asia and Severian when they come in and it's Marie who is kind of like, what, what are you talking about? This is all like, it's, you know, superstition or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then Asia afterward is talking about this or rather Severian is talking about this and Asia is like, yeah, like when you, whenever I meet people in these gardens, it's the ones I can't remember her specific, uh, word or phrase that she uses, but basically, uh, people who are like, who are taking on like the characteristics of madmen or like people who are like unbalanced are ones who are in, you know, ensorcelled by the gardens, but still have the capacity to like sense the visitors. Um, mm. so there's, I don't know, there, because of the ambiguity, right? Either Agio is correct, or we've got this kind of like uh, historical thing that opens up where uh, whatever technology is operating here and now in, in Severian's time, it is literally connecting with history in ways that are suggesting that like throughout all of human history, uh, there have been like hints or implications of this future to come that people who are uh, uh, sensitive in the right ways, right? Uh, have been able to like pick up on it. Uh, and there's some implications to all of that, I think. There's like, I mean, the, the fact that this is a missionary context cannot be overlooked, right? That there yeah. is something very specifically loaded about, uh, in this story in particular, and with Wolf as this particular writer stumbling into this scene of uh, missionary work where the woman, who is kind of the, the most kind of clear-headed and rational uh, party, she does not recognize the presence of these uh, what the other two call or think of as like spirits Um, and it's actually Isangoma who's just like all right yeah like there are 
spirits here. Did I say, I didn't say what Isangoma meant, did I? I said it was just no, a Zulu word. did not say no. what it meant. Oh, so it is, it is not a name. Mm-hmm. It is a, like, uh, a title or, like, word used basically to describe, like, a, uh, uh, like shaman or like medicine man or something like that. These are like definitions that I'm pulling out of dictionaries that I'm looking at that are written in English. And we can think about the politics of all that as well. But uh, that's, that's the thing to, I think underscore is that Wolf is here presenting um, kind of a long tail history of religion and suggesting something about this missionary situation. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a, this is one of the scenes I think that is, has been most rewarding to read on reread. You know, I, I think I said in the first episode that I've read these books a few times, and every time I reread them, I get something a little bit different out of it, as as happens when you re- reread most books. Um, but but notably, what a thing that I've always picked up, which is notable, is that the uh, quote unquote rational, you know, uh, uh, I need to convert you imperialist presence here is a woman, uh, mm-hmm. and. Uh, if uh, if gender is in these books, mm-hmm. right? If this whole thing smacks of gender, this is a place where we uh, the the reading that we did for today, right? With uh, Agia Dorcas and this missionary, her name's Maria. You said uh, Marie. Marie. Uh, the, these are like three figures we need to probably talk about. But you know the the hand of religious imperialism um, and European imperialism in particular. Uh, is is uh, a woman here, right? Which is, I think, notable. And someone who is more in touch with the actual, as far as we understand the reality of the situation, is this artistic man. Um, mm-hmm. And there's something yep. going on here. But the thing that really struck me about this section, uh, read, reading it this time, is that it is a dual conversion scenario. Uh, the missionaries think that they are converting uh, Isangoma to some kind of version of Christianity. We don't know exactly what it is. and And she uses terms that are not our world terms, right? She uses well, a very specific, the incarnate or something. Is that a Catholic term specifically? She uses the compassionating is what she yeah, describes, how she describes God. But what, but what she is talking about is Moses's death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Specifically. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, she's reading the passage of Moses's yeah. death or his awareness on the Mount about his death. Right, right before his death. Yeah. 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 There's uh, something I, weird that happens in their dialogue where, uh, Words are replaced with very close synonyms that are also just not like the uh, Isangoma uh, calls them preceptor and preceptress, right? Rather yeah. than teacher, right? right. So there's something right. happening there. Uh, he's converting them at the same time, mm-hmm. right? He's like, hey, if y'all knew about the proud one, if you knew like the kind of fullness of reality that the proud one helped you understand, you would you would be on my side on this one, right? Mm-hmm. And for Isangoma. In this scenario, he's there trying to, he calls them, you know, preceptor, preceptress, but he is trying to get them to convert to his faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are doing the same thing at the same time, right? Uh, and by and the that, way, I think one of the ways that. that he does that is by telling the story of a fisherman uh, who sees a fish jump from beyond the the depths of the of the water and then, and then to turn itself into a reflection in the real world. Uh, echoing in some parts a story that Severian has just told himself because he wanted to hear it again, as you right. mentioned. <laughs> right. Mumbling to himself the whole way. Yeah. God, Severian's a weird old guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, we can talk about that in a second also. But but yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we know, I mean, I think, so again, there's this ambiguity here. Do we read this as a kind of... Um, Oh gosh, what's the Jungian term where like things jump from the psyche to the real world? 
I feel like Michael knows this. What? I hate young. Um, yeah, you don't have any I just feel like here. What, but there, there, is a, there is a word for that, for, you know, psychological tensions breaking out into the real world. So is this Severian's story getting rewritten into maybe a, uh, you know, you talked about the Stegosaurus with the speaker, right? You mm-hmm. know, or the Triceratops with the speaker. Is this the, uh, you know, the reenactment that happens that's part of the thing and it pulls in psychic energies? Because we're in science fiction fantasy world, right? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Or is this just, uh, you know, uh, happy coincidence, you, you know, um, serendipity in some way of, of things running into one, one another isomorphically? You know, their shapes are the same, but their forms are different mm-hmm. um, or, or, or their kind of provenance is different and they've happened together. In a general sense, right, thinking about the structural stuff we've talked about before, this book and the next book have a kind of Lives of the Saints vibe to it. And that also is kind of part of the stories of the Lives of the Saints, right, that Providence creates scenarios in which similar situations appear over and over again. And those are opportunities for faith or for um, disavowal or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe that's one of those things that's happened. We don't know, you know, and there's a way that you could try to solve this. Uh, you know, that you could dig into this. And and I would say that in the Wolfian fan community, this is a, a scene that I've read about a whole lot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and to the point where I think people have, not I think, people have made claims about who these people are historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, okay. and that this is a rewriting, I think maybe from a different book, someone's memoir, if I'm remembering correctly. It's been a while since I've read this stuff. But I'm not really interested in that. I'm more interested in all these different things. And exactly as you just said, Austin, right? This like, uh, tripling up of narratives about the world, right? With Father Inire's mirrors, and then Isangoma's fish with its reflection, and then the the kind of reflection on one's life that's happening with the story about Moses. Um, and I don't want to collapse into any of that into like linear meaning, but it is interesting that it's all kind of constellating together. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, like this is like a call. You said this earlier that like we can get two and a half hours out of any mm-hmm. of these paragraphs. Um, you know, any discursive community could arrive at any interpretation of any text, right? And and uh, could arrive at in a, at a at a scent of a meaning so seemingly obvious and true that it becomes like a canonical keystone of that of that discursive community forever, right? Everyone, some someone has a conversation loudly and it becomes key to all future conversations because it's produced certain terminology that starts to get used and certain interpretive movements, right? <clears throat> someone could come back to this and say, oh, uh, Insingoma talks about his feet being on the water in this chant that he uses to seemingly send Severian and Agia the, or their, their, their seeming ghosts away. This is all about, you know, actually in Sangoma is uh, the proud one is Jesus. And because uh, Marie mm-hmm. talks about Moses, there's a sort of Old Testament, New Testament thing happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you and th- and that could be a loud. I just is like I just did that off the top of my head as as kind of BS. That could become central inside of a discursive community in such a way that it becomes a standard reading that everyone accepts and becomes the key that they use to unlock the rest of the text. Mm-hmm. And that can happen a thousand, thousand times. Can um, I give you a fun word for this? Please. Foucault calls this a regime of truth. Of course. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's great. Yeah. It's good mm-hmm. stuff. I love to be on a podcast where I'm not the one who has to say Foucault. It makes me feel <laughs> good to, to not be that guy. Um, and so, I think it's like I get why a chapter like this can become that, uh, but I would, you know, I, I know I'm already the person who said don't look up words, which I didn't mean as like a, 
a you know a natural law. <laughs> Never look no. Up words. This is the world of podcasting. You got to triple down. But, well, that's <laughs> the thing is. Here is me tripling down. I do <laughs> think that if what you're looking for is that you're damning yourself. Like uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I I truly think that it is bad to enter a text looking to solve it. And I think it's worse to write a text in hopes that you can make something solvable. You will fail. You will write something else instead by mistake. Um, uh, you Because what you write will have, you know, uh, it, it will have an endless amount of interpretive space to it, regardless of what your intention was. Uh, mm-hmm. And in trying to find the key, you will miss all of the other doors you could walk into uh, and mm-hmm. will miss all of the ways. And that doesn't mean that you can't have a reading that you really like. I certainly do that all the time, right? And, and I think naturally part of being in a discursive community is being like, ooh, we've all decided collectively that we're really interested in the fact that it's a rocket ship, right? Yeah. Um, or really interested in gender or really interested in all these different things. Uh, but the second that like, you know, th- there is a little, there's a little bit of like, um, oh, uh, I, you know, uh, the oh, here comes the tolerant left about what I'm saying, right? Where I'm like, <laughs> every reading is good except for the one that says it's the one true reading. But I have to say that because the person who says there's one true reading is closing the text off, right? Mm-hmm. And is mm-hmm. and is insisting uh, in such a way that I think diminishes the the text in trying to identify the the answer inside of any given you know thing. And again, that doesn't mean that you can't have. Um, uh, that, you know, this is, this is, you know, uh, uh, the biography of the, of the, what's, what's the phrase you always use? Biography is not blank. Biography is not destiny. destiny. Biography is not destiny. Yeah. Uh, obviously, but you can, but you can refer to historical instances. You can refer to biography as a new lens to bring down onto the text. Right. Uh, and so I think like uh, what makes a chapter like this so good is that you can unpack it over and over again. Not that it could provide, the one door into the truth, you know? Yeah. And yeah, and you, especially with the book of the new sun reading, and right? Who the fu- think for yourself for a second. <laughs> who's, who's political and project another thing. And another thing, whose political project is it to say, and I have the one truth. Well, so that's uh, that's kind of what I was about to say is that there is an, an investment, you know, and, and Michael talked about the live journal communities that he mm-hmm. was reading, you know, in the uh-huh. early 2000s, yeah, sure. a couple episodes ago, right? And I've read all those communities. I've been passively, not participating in, but passively reading Gene Wolfe stuff on the internet for like, I don't know, 15 years or something at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. know, like wherever the forum threads are, wherever it pops up on, you know, uh, whatever fan community you can find, I'm generally reading those things. Um, and there are are uh, ideas that get returned to over and over again. And one of them is that this is a text that that is highly determined and and elusive by Gene Wolfe himself, Mm -hmm. right? That Gene Wolfe's imaginary, the things he could know about, the things that he could talk to you about, uh, determine the limits of the thing. You know, Mm -hmm. Catholicism is in the thing, and it shows up. And if you're missing the Catholicism, then you're missing the work. And, you know, that's not, I don't think, what any of us are are interested in. There's a... uh, uh, Whereas he is not talking about the holodeck because it hasn't been invented yet. I don't know. The holodeck's been invented. No, not the, the holodeck. holodeck. Well, this is when written was it in not until like the late eighties for Next Generation, right? Oh, is that true? I, don't, I yeah. truly no holodeck don't know. In, there's no holodeck in the original series. I don't believe. <laughs> I love this. There's no holodeck in there's the no original ho- series. Come on. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, uh, Twin Peaks 
we know David Lynch, but Mark Frost, right, is the the other kind of one, not the, but one of the other kind of key creatives behind that project. And Mark Frost has this phrase about uh, secrets and mysteries, right? You know, there's a difference between mm, a secret and mm-hmm. a mystery. And I think that, um, yeah, I'm just not. We don't need to return to this every episode, but in some ways, we do have to return to this every episode. Is that uh, I think that the that Book of the New Sun is not a secret. It's a it's a mystery. Right. There's not a hidden thing for you to find out. One, you know, the hidden keyword that's going to bring all kinds of things up. But there are unknowns in there and purposeful ambiguities. I think that Gene Wolfe is a wonderful writer because of all of these ambiguities of this kind of uh, um, fragmented reality that two things that are simultaneously true will show up together. And to be honest, if we read the thing as a uh, Catholic style text, right? If we think that that's an important, if not the important uh, pillar, then one of the important pillars of the the project, then a contradictory mystery is in fact required. Uh, necessary. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, exactly. Otherwise it doesn't work, right? Yes. So, you know, I, I think that's right. I think that finding the single meaning of this scene or any of the other scenes is not particularly fruitful because I like the mystery. I think it's, that's more interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, and quite specifically, I think uh, something relevant here, because it really jumped out to me on this reread, is the way that Severian uh, is, one, absolutely captured by all of this. Like Mm -hmm. something about the experience of the botanical gardens in general really seems to disturb him. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that he never quite explains, like he's just clearly like he's constantly, this is what I was trying to get to is that he is constantly asking Asia for like information. Like yeah. he treats her like a Bethesda NPC <laughs> where he's just like, where are we? What are the botanical gardens who built them? Uh, and after this experience with the missionaries specifically, uh, where he's like trying to work through what just happened to him, he's just like, you know, pumping her for information and she's providing the answers that she can, uh, she explains, you know, sometimes people get caught in here and the people who take on the persona of madmen or whatever are the ones who, who are, uh, uh, the ones who see me. And then he's like, well, then explain what was going on with the man. The implication being like, he, he didn't see the, the, the man, like the man missionary as a madman. Uh, and she literally says to him, I didn't build this place. Severian. <laughs> <laughs> like she has so to like, good. just be like, I cannot tell you everything about the world because that is what he does constantly. I mean, she is so there's this double thing going on with her, maybe triple or quadruple thing going on with her. Right. Where on one hand, she is uh, she's tricking Severian. Right. Like, yes. And part of that trickery is that Severian is like this horny kid. And she knows that, and mm-hmm. she is leaning into that hard. And due to the vagary, due to him basically being a huge nerd, right? They mm-hmm. never get to the horny part. Right. She wants to take him to the sex garden. She's like, let's uh-huh. go to the Garden of let's Delectation. And he's like, garden. wait a minute, jungle biome. Uh-huh. <laughs> Ooh, sand world. Let's stand here for four hours and dissociate. Uh, which, which is what happens, You know what? Right? Same. He's uh, just like me for real. Right. Who doesn't want to yeah. stand in sand biome and think about nothing for uh-huh. four and a half hours? Are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, that that so and then she so she is constantly being like, all right, how do I like basically pacify this kid, right, to get him to just get to my brother's killing him? You know, like how do we do that? Uh, and she's constantly doing it, and you know, and it, the the thing where her dress rips and then her like boob comes out. 
and she's legitimately annoyed. That's not like a being coy thing. That's not her like trying to get Severian, you know, riled up or anything. That just happens. And the writing of that is extremely funny because she's like, fuck, I wore this party dress in order to excite this dude. And now I have ruined it. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like a cheap fake party. It's a Halloween costume, essentially, yeah. right? Is what yeah. how it's kind of described. She's wearing like stage and now jewelry. She's, like she's at wearing a disadvantage. Yes, yeah. yes. Or well, um, at, at the same time, she might be the realest person in the world because her dismissal of Severian's questions also feels like it comes from a place of world weariness, and like she sees the world as it is. Uh, she comes across it as a sort of realist in the sense of like listen bud we're all just bouncing around in here trying to get ours um and like, by the end of this section at least uh, in a way that that actually makes me very fond of her um mm-hmm. uh, in a way that i think severian might be fond of her it might be what severian is responding to in her even though he doesn't put that in words or i'm projecting that like she sees the world in a way that Thecla couldn't from her high position. Um, I mean, he's constantly almost uh, uh, eroticizing and exoticizing um, Agia's low boredness throughout mm-hmm. all of this stuff. Um, uh, it's not quite like I want to touch her hair because it feels different than any hair I've ever seen, but it's uh, it's, it's not too far from that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the and I think that that's like why she's such a compelling character even though she's intensely caught up in all of the gender stuff that's happening around women being untrustworthy and right. uh women being this is the first time that you see a character who you, you who would support the earlier notion that women aren't allowed to be torturers because they they would be too cruel that this is the an illustration of a, of a character that would fit the bill that Severian suggested earlier there um but all through this stuff there is just such a like Work a day quality to her. Uh, the the you mentioned this in the summary that by the end the, the reveal that has been hinted. It's so clear how untrustworthy she is during all of this, and it only makes me root for her more. <laughs> so yeah, you yeah, know. she's like a great scammer character, yep. right? And and like you said, like there is this like um, ambiguity at the levels of how we're supposed to take her, right? Because again, we have to remember like scale scale or or uh, I, I guess hierarchy wise, you got Gene Wolf writing a book, mm-hmm. of Severian writing a book, of Severian's experience of people in the world, right? And imagine each of those little sentence fragments being kind of levels that are stacked on top of one another. And you, you know, I think it's easy to look at AG and be like, Gene Wolf's sexist writing, you know what I mean? Like, and I think if you stop there, that'd probably be fine because I do think the end outshot of that, mm-hmm. of, of the Asia storyline probably lands there. I think that there's some real, um, limits put on AJ as a character because I, I don't think that Wolf is interested in thinking of her beyond a functional role. Uh, but you can see these things of, as you just said, right? Severian's perception of her. And then if you're actually reading the things she's saying and paying attention to her, um, maneuvers and her interactions and the way she is talking and how she is lovey and, and you know, she eventually says, Severian, I love you, that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. The, the way she oscillates into that and then, as Michael was saying earlier, right, the, the almost like, 
fuck, man. I don't know. What do you want? I live here just like you do. I live down the street. You live here. You could have seen. How do you not know about this place already? Everyone knows about this place, right? Like, we inter all of our dead but, here. But does she only know so much about this place because she's run this scam 30 times? Yes. Right? Yes. Like, that's the thing is, is that if she went back and got that sheriff we met last time mm-hmm. and brought him here, would he also be a Severian about it and be like, I don't know. There's a lot of wild stuff going on here. And she is perfectly poised to just walk through it all without a care in the world, without being pulled to any of them as far as we can see in the way that Severian is. Yeah. And I do think that the Severian's desire to like go to these different places messes up the scam in some Mm -hmm. ways. Right. Because you can imagine the alternate universe that we're, you know, kind of being pitched on occasionally. That's like, Hey, let's go to the botanical gardens. Let's go to the garden of delectation. Let's like, you know, uh, do opium and have sex for four and a half hours. All right, go get that Avern. Now we're going to, for you to get killed by my brother, right? Like the scam probably operates much more efficiently and she probably doesn't have to answer that many questions if she's done it before. Right, right. Right. Um, And so, yeah, I think she's a much more canny and much more fun character if you're really kind of paying attention to her as a character. Although schematically, big picture wise, I, I think that, you know, she runs into some, some general issues. I'm sorry, what were you talking about? I was just uh, busy Googling uh, Agia speech options make her still love me after <laughs> duel. Uh, well, how uh, many ending Agia, true, true <laughs> ending Agia, good ending Agia. Yeah. yeah. How many conversation coins do you need to have yeah, in yeah. order to go into that convo? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that is how I feel about, or rather not how I feel about this character. It's like, I can sense in this character type, right, the way I mentioned this in the previous episode, like what she would be as like a JRPG character Mm -hmm. who's like the person who joins you at the beginning of the game provides a (laughs) bunch of helpful tutorial information and then turns out to backstab you, right? Like she sure is high level. She sure does have a bunch of useful abilities right away. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I like Michael. You were like, uh, that is how I think about her. And in my mind, instantly, I was like, oh, Michael has an Agia body pillow. (laughs) uh, Michael has Agia figures up on the up on the shelves. Yeah. Yeah. My my Figma. Um, Uh, No, actually, uh, the other thing I think to note about Agia and all that stuff that we were talking about, uh, since we already know where this ends up with Agilis at the end, right, is Mm -hmm. uh, the what you were saying, Cameron, about I can't remember how you put it, something about the uh, the frame or something that was put on her by Wolf uh, in terms yeah, the of the kind of schematic of her yeah. as a character. Yeah. Right. So the other thing I think that's really important to think about uh, Ari Agia, and we can maybe use this also as a as we finish up here as a bridge to talking about our, our new friend Dorcas, um, uh, Agia and her brother are twins and the fact that they are like physically similar is remarked upon a lot because I mean, well, they are twins, but also they are, you know, like a boy and a girl. So they're not quite identical, uh, but they also have a, a, a real, um, I mean, they run this scam together, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is their thing that they do. And so whether or not like we need to go with, because uh, I like you, Cameron, I've read uh, the the listservs and the live journals and the forums and everything. And uh, uh, the implications of an incestuous relationship here are a thing that a lot of readers bring out. And I think that doesn't even have to be literal if we read this on like the level of thematics uh, that Agia and Agilis together represent this kind of um 
I mean, self-interest, right? Like self-interest in, in almost a, a literal fashion. I think of like at the end where uh, Agilus like explains uh, his whole deal to Severian where he's like, it was my right to do what I did to you because you did not know the value of the sword that you held. Right. Like because I knew that the sword was a, a, a priceless heirloom and you wouldn't sell it to me. It was therefore my right to, like, do all yeah. these shenanigans Yeah, um, that they're competing images of the world. Mm-hmm. Totally. For his perspective on the world, there's not just it's not just his right, but there is a programmatic kind of honor code around it. Because uh, that's the other thing he runs into too, right? Is the like, well, here, here are the reasons you should let me go, right? He has a whole separate like law custom that legitimates every action that he did. But, sorry to interrupt, but that's you know a whole um, uh, you know universe of stuff that he brings to that conversation. And because we're in this fantasy ass space. Uh, it's organized around that's a Hattori Hanzo sword. <laughs> you can't just <laughs> right, come into right. my crappy little shop with a Hattori Hanzo sword and expect me to not try to get it. That's the rule out here. Mm-hmm. And it is, is literally the rule out here per Agilus. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. And so uh, I just think that's important because I mean, quite literally, I feel like Agilus is a prop for Agia, who's the character we get to spend more time with and get right. to see her actually react to things. Uh, but there's, you know, the scene at the end where they're both in their little dungeon cell and they're both nude again, like weird vibes about whatever's going on there, potentially. I mean, uh, even the thing that that I'm guessing people point to in this is where he's like, don't ask me about Agia. Everything you suspect is true. Is that enough? Uh-huh. Right. And I'm sure that that is the thing that you point to to be like, OK. Like, this is an incestuous relationship on top of this being the guy who, when you remove his mask, the ribbons are still there holding it up as if as if there's a second mask. There's all this coding with them as having uh, having otherworldly or unnatural, I guess, actually, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 you know, aspects of of what they look and feel like, um, which also you can then tie back to incest in, in thematic and aesthetic ways. Right. So. Well, I mean, that's a thing that 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 has always been my reading of it, too. And, uh, you know, I know that's the common fan reading. When I got to it this time, I'm not quite sure that that's what what is being communicated mm. in that moment. I really don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is so much more because I, I, I this reading, I'm trying to go into things being like, all right, what is my standard read here? And is there any is there another way of approaching it? Just because, you know, uh, I, that's fun. <laughs> to do (laughs) i don't know uh and i really don't know in that scene if that is what is being communicated um because they're also like clones of one another or something you know they i maybe that's part of what she does some witchcraft on the way out maybe right Mm -hmm. right she like leaves a curse you know she takes his money and leaves some sort of like i don't visual curse or whatever that severian has to to it either makes him uncomfortable or whatever, but he has to like scrape it out of existence in order to not look at it. Right. I don't know that it is so much stranger than I thought that it, that it was when I, you know, the past several times I read this. Uh, do we want to move? Can we, before we move forward to Dorcas, can we move backwards to the mirrors? Yeah. We need yeah, to spend yeah. another, uh, we need to spend like an hour and 20 or so on these mirrors. Mm-hmm. The fact that Severian has spent chapter after chapter being like, I have a perfect memory. I have a perfect memory. And then reveals that to have that perfect memory, he has to tell himself the stories out loud Mm -hmm. is incredible. (laughs) 
he can't just sit there. Or he's making a, he desires to hear the story again. And to hear it again means to have it told again. And so he has to tell it in his best Thecla impression out loud as he's following Dorcas around the holodeck gardens slash time travel gardens. Yep. And then Ajia's there and she's like, why are you mumbling to yourself? Also, the story, he's like, can you imagine being Ajia and this guy's behind you? And he's like, well, Father Anir loves little girls. And also he has <laughs> teleportation mirrors. And there's there's reflections in them. Then they're fish. And it's like, what are you talking about? Can we please just go to the Garden of Del- Delectation? Like, I'm dying to just move this scam forward. <laughs> yes, I can't imagine that. Because it's happening. Because that's the book. <laughs> <sighs> We're getting it. We're reading that. Uh, but but yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, there are so many times in the book already uh, that Severian's story of how he remembers things and his perfect memory and how he interacts with his own memories is complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, the in the fan community of of um, the Book of the New Sun, the phrase I've mentioned this before is Severian lies. That is not complicated enough <laughs> uh, in order to understand, I think, what is it, or for, for to get to the level that I would like to get to with the book, right, of, of complicatedness, of accepting it for its complexity. Severian lies is insufficient because Severian um, elides the truth sometimes. Severian tells you certain information that he feels is most important or, or less important. And sometimes it is Severian telling him the th- telling himself the thing that we are then being told. Um and we all do that with memory. Gene mm-hmm. Wolfe knows that. This is partially, I think, the impetus for the book is to demonstrate these things. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think that scene is hyper, hyper key um, uh, in a general sense. But, Michael, it sounded like you were going to say something. Oh, I was just I was going to say that um, one of the most fascinating things about Severian's perfect memory is that it works an awful lot by like my memory. Which is to say, sure, I remember everything that I am thinking of at the moment, except for the things that I don't remember that I've forgotten. And maybe some of the things that I remember right now are the things that I am, like, fabricating as fantasies that are actually overtaking my memory, right? Uh, or, like, uh, uh, I, I am telling you everything, but I might forget to say something that I do remember. I just forget to say it. Uh, so there's something about the Severian perfect memory stuff, yeah, that I've been thinking a lot about this reread that is very much like, this is a man who says he has a perfect memory. Um, and at the same time, his the, the functions of his memory are just anyone's old functions of memory. Mm-hmm. There are there's a there's a formal thing that's been happening. Uh, I didn't bring it up last time, but I made note of it last time, and it continues here in this section, which is ever since he has entered the the world of Nessus, leaving the the Citadel behind. I know the Citadel is a Nessus, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, he does this listing thing. Has have people picked up on this? That when he describes certain places or um, uh, you know, rooms or he may do it in the altar. He's, he, he does this thing of listing stuff out in order to help you, uh, you know, think about what it might look like or something. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the, the story of Domnina, he says uh, there were sobrettes, columbines, coryphees, harle- uh, harlequinas, figurantes, uh, and he's, he does this, and obviously here he is theoretically repeating Thecla, but all mm-hmm. through the previous section, he was constantly doing this sort of 
repetitious description. Um, mm-hmm. uh, an, an inventory almost. An inventory, mm-hmm. exactly. Which, I don't know, uh, one way to read that is to say, oh, this is this is an affect brought upon by the type of memory he has, which is a sort of inventory, or he describes at other points as being a sort of inventory. Um, uh, it can also <laughs> be just a, a, an aspect of the way that he is as a writer, that he think that so the Severian who is sitting down to write this is like, oh, I got to list, I got to list the guild halls, basilicas, arenas, conservatories, treasuries, oratories, <laughs> martellos, asylums, <laughs> manufactories, conventicles, hospices, lazarets, mills, ref, uh, refectories, dead houses, abattoirs, and playhouses. That's literally a list that he goes through when describing Nessus. Right. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. he does this over and over uh, the forest of pink and white marble, red sardonyx, blue and gray cre- and cream and black bricks and green and yellow and Tyrian tiles. This is how he describes the world sometimes. Uh, no, this is the sort of guy who gets lost in the gardens. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, which I think is actually a really interesting sketch of a of a of a mode of perception in some ways. Mm-hmm. Right. Or as a, of our mode of writing. In, in terms of uh, ways of, of talking about perception, right, it's it's a kind of phenomenology of the fantasy yes. world. Yes. And by that, I mean, you know, it is literally a analysis of the experience itself, right? So um, there, you know, one way of uh, showing us a fantasy world or talking about a fantasy world might be through exposition, right? So think about the way that Agia is constantly getting poked, you know, by Severian. Hey, explain this to me, explain this to me, explain this to me. And through that, we get these big explanations of the Lake of the Dead and things like that, right? But the other one, or one of the others that that we could think about is this kind of inventory of the thing. And importantly, he rarely explains any of that, right? It's not yeah. like he gives you that inventory and says, and of course, some of these were like this and the others were like this. It is mostly just this kind of litany of different stuff. And that is a, uh, an impetus or a provocation, right? For us as a reader to be like, well, what the hell is all this stuff? <laughs> and it, it is a kind of provocation also to do the thing that, um, you know, that is a, uh, reflex. I think for most of us, including me, right. While reading this book is like, hold on shit. I need to look all these words up. Mm-hmm. Um, and mind you, that would have been a lot harder in 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, finding out where all these words come from, if you don't just have that on your, on the dome, right, and ready to go, you didn't have the internet to, like, just hammer out and figure all those things out. Uh, reading this book at that time, uh, for lots of people, would have been an exercise in, well, what is this? Can I imagine what this thing is? And and can I kind of get there? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's part of it, right? That that we're getting Severian's experience, and that experience in terms of like the writerly thing is Wolf provoking the reader to do a little bit of imaginative stuff and to do the thing that you talked about in episode one, Austin, which is like, well, I kind of know what part of this word means, right. so what does the other thing mean? Right, so uh, like when I described the, or when I mentioned the Sabrets, Columbines, Corfis, uh, uh, the lead into that is is Thecla explaining that a few days before I'd been given a set of paper figures. And she gives that list. And maybe the only one there you might know is Harlequin, right? You might not know mm-hmm. what the yeah. Italian stock characters are, right, uh, from, from, from Italian comedies, right? Uh, but you might know what a Harlequin is. And so suddenly the rest of those start to fill in. And the emotional space of what those paper figures might feel like for a young Thecla becomes a little clearer. And I think that that is the work that Wolf does 
to build a bridge to the words you don't know often, mm. you know? Yeah, it is evocative and not explanatory. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's cool. Like, I, I think that's great, and that works for me. And, you know, like I've said before, right, I've done the thing of looking up lots of these words, but I, I for the most part, I don't know what half of these words are, and I never will. Um, <laughs> because it, really, for the purposes of the book, I don't think it matters all that much. Well, the word is... The, the absence of that knowledge is expected, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and is part of the actual word that's being written, right? Yeah. When, when Wolf writes, you know, I keep going back to Destrier, which I still don't know has actually come up in the book, but it's the no, one it in my head. Okay, no, it, it, it has. It's the end when of they're, uh, yeah, when they're getting in the buggy or whatever. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, no, that would be an that might be an onager. I think actually. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, but still, there there is a sort of next. There's a second level of encoding happening, right? Where it's not the the actual definition of the term. It's the sounds, and then the context is what's being written for the reader to bump into. Right. Um, mm-hmm. It's not just oh, I'm calling to mind. You know, when when he writes applaud. He's talking about praising someone, and that's very direct. But when he uses a different word that he expects the reader not to know because it's archaic, or he expects the reader maybe knows a root word, he is writing the ambiguity and and the loose familiarity. He's not writing just the denotation of the of the term, right? So mm-hmm. anyway, there are these mirrors, right? <laughs> well, I want to talk one more thing about memory, okay? Right? Because yes. it's because it matters, and it, there, it'll be hard to like shoehorn it in somewhere else. On page 177, Severian says, because this is when Agia and Agilus, uh, you know, Ooh. they're in the prison. Agia attacks him, and he says, I slapped her wrist perhaps harder than I should, I should, and she flew at me, clawing my for my eyes, as Thecla used sometimes to do when she could no longer bear the thoughts of imprisonment and pain. Hmm. Yeah. So Thecla used to attack him and try to rip his eyes from his head. Yep. Uh, and also on a, a similar note, much earlier, actually in the reading for the last time, we forgot to pull this up. Uh, but when uh, Asia and Severian are in the wagon, like bustling along, he puts his arm around her and feels extremely uh, uh, basically smug about that. <laughs> um, he's like, <laughs> uh, uh, throw it like the, the, the wagon jumps, right? Throwing Asia's slight body against mine so pleasantly that I put an arm around it and held it there. I had clasped women. So before Thecla often and hired bodies in the town, uh, mm-hmm. notably, we did not mention this either, but, uh, after that first visit to house Azure, uh, Severian ends that chapter by saying, I never went back there again. Uh, yep. And kind of like lets that stand as sort of like his moral point, right? Like well, I was says, so like, disgusted. I had to never go back there because I could feel myself becoming a worse version of myself, right? Right. But yeah, but there, the, uh-huh. the, the key word is it never went there again, uh-huh. right? <laughs> so just a, a little thing that uh, again, like I, I don't know if a, a Severian lies is quite the way that you want to put this because it's almost like right. Severian forgets what he's told you were kind of like certain rhetorical moves that he's made and then lets something slip, or he uh, uh, kind of like tries to get around the problem of lying by simply not telling you something until he tells it to you. <laughs> I, I did I. Every time we identify one of these, I feel like Columbo. Did I already do a Columbo <laughs> bit on this podcast? I don't think so. Uh, you know, my wife, my wife has held the the body of a woman many times in this city. <laughs> and the thing she says, she tells me it's not just the house as your. 
where that now I don't it's not my just one more thing one more thing <laughs> Severian now you say that you know about having your eyes clawed out <laughs> but exactly. I thought you and Thecla I thought y'all had a great relationship going <laughs> what about that yeah there, you, there you is know, kind of, earlier you had made it seem as if the relationship with Thecla really only had a before and an after. That once she was on the revolutionary, it basically ended. But now you're saying she was in pain and torment for a, an extended period of time when the visitations continued. It's all it's all right there. So very, you, you got to stop. You know, shut the fuck up, Fridays, bud. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of the thing, right? And, and exactly, as you said, Michael, like Severian lines is insufficient, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think for me, the thing that becomes at least more sufficient or, or a more useful way of, of reading the book is, uh, of cross comparison, right? Like wh- where do things show up and under what conditions and why do we know that now? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is also the thing, uh, and this is where there's a real, uh, rhyming nature with something like Homestuck. By the way, if you're not familiar with Range Touch, we did like a year-long show about Homestuck doing the same thing that we're doing here to Homestuck, and Michael did a bunch of additional work to that. We don't just bring up Homestuck for fun. It's <laughs> not like the thing we do, uh, it, you know, in case that you think that. Uh, we did a long show of this. I think if you like this show, you actually will more than likely enjoy that show. Strangely. People should, you know, I'm, I'm a... A paid guest on this show. <laughs> I am the third chair for now, at least. I'd like to continue being. I have been a Range Touch fan for a long time, and I don't know that you did a strong enough pitch on what Range Touch is in like the first episode. Because I guess theoretically, there's new listeners who are like, I don't care about Range Touch. I care about Severian. <laughs> Talk to yeah. me about Severian. But here in the third episode, I gotta say, all of y'all have done so much cool stuff over the years from the Mages and Murder Dads Let's Plays with Danny, uh, where you play through all the Baldur's Gate series, uh, to Just King Things, your ongoing show, uh, the two of you listen or, or reading through uh, all of Stephen King publication order and talking about that with um, a similar or even more extended uh, uh, criticality and thoughtfulness, uh, plus a lot more uh, a focus on biography and background information and and. Uh, reading reviews and and putting the, the works in order or in conversation with each other because you're going through them in publication order. That stuff has been great. Homestuck Made This World is great. Game Study Study Buddies is like my cornerstone as a, uh, a former games academic uh, who has left academia behind. It, it lets me feel like a full person when I listen to it. People can and should support Range Touch by going to patreon.com slash range touch. Um, if you like this show, you should listen to the rest of their shows. RangeTouch.com has links to all of them. That's true. Very true. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, and y'all just wrapped up Fallout 4 on Too Much Future, right? Oh, God. Did, did we ever? <laughs> <laughs> 420 praising. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, I, so that, that's the reason why we bring up Homestuck occasionally. But the, the thing that is similar to that and similar to lots of kind of big networked um, – science fiction fantasy genre work in a, in, in a general sense, right? Is that Gene Wolfe really rewards you for paying attention to the sentence by sentence level. Mm-hmm. It is easy, easy. Like I've, I, and I've done it before, right? To just read past some of these lines. They're single lines, but they are single lines or two lines or whatever, right? But they are single lines or two lines that say to you directly as a reader, hey, all those chapters before, the, Severian maybe didn't lie to you, but it, they are incomplete. 
the narrator left those things incomplete to you. Right. And if you know this thing, then you can go back and look at those things and go, all right, so where do we think that Thecla is trying to attack him and claw his eyes out of his head? Mm-hmm. Right? You know, it, it is it during the parts where, or, or after the parts, or before the parts where he's like snuggling up to her and ripping his shirt off or whatever, right? Where she is lasciviously removing his shirt from him and he's like banging his, his arms on the wall trying to leave, right? Like, where in that is he being attacked? It it creates a pressure on the kind of world of the narrator that that uh, it, I think encourages you and encourages a reader to develop a certain encyclopedic kind of knowledge of the thing. And I, I think that that's where not I think I mean I've read all the work. That's where a lot of the fan community for Book of the no- New Sun goes right. Mm-hmm. That. Proper understanding is an encyclopedic knowledge of all the different reference to one another within the text itself. Um, And the book encourages you to do that. That's not just like fans up from nothing deciding to do that. The book has the the stuff in there to encourage you to do that, which is similar to things like comic books. It's similar Mm -hmm. to things like long running fantasy series or um, science fiction series. Joe Walton has a, Really great essay. It, it might be on the Tor website, but it's from, I don't know, like 15, 20 years ago, maybe a long time ago. That's called, that's just about reading long running series. And it's like two or three pages. It's like a, a fun little essay. I'll put it in the description if, it, if it's actually online. I read it in one of her books, but it's about the, when a new book comes out in a series that you really like, mm-hmm. what does it feel like to go and read like the previous seven books all in a run to wait for the new book to come out? Um, and, and it's a great kind of thing and it, it gives you an impression, a good impression, I think of how these kinds of things are received within science fiction and fantasy fandoms in particular, but that's a long thing to say, but I think that those things are really important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, a you know, as you say, part and parcel of the genre and kind of the commercial space of the genre. Uh, and then there's also like the additional angle here for me that I think is really interesting and worth pursuing is like, or like, you know, uh, thinking about as we move forward, uh, Severian uh, rhetorically is positioned as a new ruler who is trying to explain himself to his populace. Right. And it all, it seems an awful lot like uh, he has keyed into or like stumbled upon the idea that centering his narrative around a romantic uh, affair is in some way good, right? That it is sympathetic, yeah. right? That he can, he can use his life story to tell a love story that renders him uh, acceptable to his audience. And it is a broken affair uh, due to the previous regime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Autark did it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, something to think about. Uh, mirrors. Yep. <laughs> Wait. No, no, no. Really well, I got another uh, 22 minutes on I something I have a very short on. thing. The holodeck yeah, yeah, here is we go. Yeah, let's the, do it. Yeah, actually very short. Thing. The holodeck has not been invented yet. The Velt okay. by Bradbury, of yeah. course, has yes. been written. And this is what we could be very directly in relation to, right? And it's, the Velt has the exact same thing of like, this is, this is like technology. This is holograms. And at the same time, those lions seem really kind of real. It's the same. Yeah. (laughs) If people aren't familiar with the Velt, it's a Ray Bradbury short, short story from 1950. I had to look this up. Uh, and it's in the illustrated man. If you, uh, if, if you wanted to like track it down, I, uh, it's a short story, so I don't want to spoil the whole thing for you, but it's about people who live in a kind of like futuristic automatic home and their newest fun thing they've gotten is essentially the holodeck. It is a room that will create any kind of space and it creates a place called, you know, you go into it and you can be wherever you want. And it creates a thing called the Velt, 
which is kind of the savanna, you know, that, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, the plane, the plains, uh, and, uh, things in there become more real than they should. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, basically right. is the, is the, the stuff, but to also give you an idea of the, you know, we talked about in the first episode, the genre stuff going on here, the Velt was initially published in the Saturday Evening Post. Wow, that is like a straight-up science fiction horror story. That's Just wild. a straight science fiction story, no question, right? And so, important to remember that the the genre boundaries, right? You know, the Saturday Evening Post, I think, for lots of us, even though they did publish lots of genre work, you can find a lot of this kind of stuff in there. I think in the American Imaginary in particular, it was a, a periodical that published lots of kinds of stuff, but also a lot of short fiction, if people don't know. Um, but we do associate that with kind of literary realism, I think, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did all kinds of stuff. And th- this is a general readership uh, uh, publication. It's just for ra- – it's a kind of like um, – um, gosh, what's the uh, – Reader's Digest, you know, that kind of thing of like, are you interested in reading stuff? Here you go, <laughs> Middle America, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, get to it. it. It was that kind of thing. So anyway – Notable to think about, but go check it out. It's widely accessible in different formats, um, and it's a fun little story. And yeah, uh, if you, if you want to get a sense of what the thing is like here, the Velt is is really important. Mm-hmm. Speaking of short stories, uh huh. Severian's telling one to himself. He, Look at that. Yeah, he uh, explains that Thecla told him that when she was thirteen, she had a friend named Domnina or Dom- Domnina. I don't know how we're going to say Domnina. that. Domnina. Domnina. Um, it's like that, I think. Who, uh, who looked younger than she really was, quote unquote. Uh, and the two of them would play in this kind of um, hall of mirrors or this, 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 sorry, it's actually called the hall of meaning uh, where there are all of these, these, there's two mirrors that are, that are, are large enough to see your reflection in both of them. Uh, and then the reflection beyond that, the way you might in like a dressing room, the way like children play with mirrors, right? Mm-hmm. Is a mm-hmm. classic thing. You you see a mirror as a kid and you see a mirror uh, on the opposite side. And you're like, oh my God, I can look in and see my reflection's reflection endlessly through this this deep, you know, hallway of, of reality. Isn't that mm-hmm. interesting? And Father it is. Ne- yeah, it is. And Father Anir shows up and he goes, uh, now you be careful. You look at you look in there. There's a little imp who's gonna get you. Um, and uh, uh, what I mean, what he might be saying is more like, um, "You're gonna get a little bit of an ego about how cute you are. Uh-huh. Um, you might slowly become a woman in front of yourself." Uh, I'm I am you know for for friends of the table reasons. Um, uh, reminded of the Sarah Morgan Brian Pitt poem, The Witch in Glass, Witch in the Glass, which says, my mother says I must not pass too near that glass. She is afraid that I will see a little witch that looks like me with a red, red mouth to whisper low the very thing I should not know, right? And so Father Anir is is, techni- is is maybe giving that sort of warning to these young girls. I don't care for that at all. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's great. That's scary. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh-huh. I don't like that. A little witch? Uh-huh. Gonna give you a curse? Gonna curse you for the rest of your life with knowledge? <laughs> with knowledge, yes. I don't want that. Of, of the self and the world and how the world sees the self. I'm reading um, a fun book over here. You're gonna bring that to my doorstep? Well, and Oscar speaking Walker? of the world seeing the self in ways the self may not want, Father Anir, uh, uh, Donina says, oh yeah, I've seen him. He looks like a tear all gleaming. And quote, Father Anir did not hesitate before he answered her or even blink. Still, I understood that he was stalled, startled. He said, no, that is someone else, Dulcinea. Can you see him plainly? No? 
Then come to my presence chamber tomorrow, a little after nonce, uh, and I will show him to you. Uh, and Before we continue with the story, can I describe, can I read the description of, of Father Anir? Please, because this is a character who we've described, like, hangs over this text <laughs> yeah. like a specter. And here he yeah. is. Yeah. So, you know, uh, he, he sends this invitation, right, just to, so to mark our place in the story. He sends an invitation, says, come to my house tomorrow, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but this is what, how he looks, right? Uh, uh, ordinarily, you understand we would have run and hidden when we saw him coming, though he was scarcely taller than we. So he, he's like, what, four feet tall? Well, this was, what I, tall? This was my thought, because last time we talked oh, about God, how they're, they're tall as hell. Right. Like, he's, yeah. he, he, he's said to be uh, uh, as small as a monkey and the oldest man in a world. Uh, yeah. But here, like, <laughs> yeah, he, he's like, he's as tall as these uh, young teenage or like, you know, just preteen girls. But also these are preteen girls who are going to grow up to be like, what, eight, nine feet tall, something like that. Mm-hmm. So right, right. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, this book will sneak up on him. <laughs> uh, cursed by knowledge. Uh, anyway, but yeah, like he's supposed to be like a little wizened monkey. And here he's like like uh, just an old man. Uh, he wore iridescent robes that seemed to fade into gray when I looked at them as if, as if they had been dyed in mist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What the fuck is that? That's Merlin. Saruman of many colors. It has a Saruman of many colors. Gandalf. <laughs> yeah, what if Gandalf decided to serve earthly power directly uh, and in gross, weird ways? He is he is a, a creep like Gandalf, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Just a real freak. Yeah. Um, but anyway, do? we don't know. We don't know. Oh, like in the story? Yeah. I mean, in general, but also in the story. Oh, what does he do in general? No one knows. He, I mean, he gives orders like the autark does, and people obey them. Mm-hmm. But other than that, he just seems to be like ripping shit around reality, right? The like, Tom Waits song, build- What's He's Building in There, was actually written about Father <laughs> and Ear. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he's doing that. He's building botanical gardens. <laughs> Yeah. And they didn't whip that thing up to get, you know, in a day. He built the botanical gardens, but the botanical gardens are old as hell. Right. They have plants in them that are from like that that are so old that they have both no natural predators and the things that they were like bred to do, you know, speciated to do don't even matter anymore. You know, we're told that in the thing. So the things are old as hell and he built them. Yeah, but also so he's always time travel involved at that point. You can build them really quick. It's just also it takes a long time. <laughs> right. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of travel of sorts, mm-hmm. he brings Domnina to the the Hall of – or to a different – it's a different mirrored room, right? It's not just the Hall of Mirrors. Yeah, it's again. his, like, chambers. It's his, like, right. little house yes. that's uh, a big, like, it's the octagon. <laughs> Father Neri uh, uh, invites this child into his challenge octagon of mirrors. <laughs> right. Uh, Weirdly and- enough, we're going to watch Conan the Barbarian for the next bonus episode mm-hmm. for patreon.com slash range touch. You can go over there and do that. It's got one of these in it. This actually might be a reference to the Robert Howard oh. story, Robert E. Howard story of the mirror monster. Well, uh, what it's like definitely a reference to is Borges. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. Uh, it is. Blah. It is. Literature. I'm blah. sorry about it, uh, but it is. It is like beat for beat the fauna in the glass uh, from or the the fauna the fauna of mirrors. It's actually called the fauna of mirrors uh, in the Book of Imaginary Beings. 
um, uh, which if, if you haven't read, uh, is just this again. Um, uh, except there's actually more details to the degree that I think the fault of mirrors might be canonical in the world. <laughs> this might have happened. Uh, so what he says is, he what he explains is like, hey, um, uh, there's a, you can see a little guy in there. There's a little fish in there. And that fish is the least important of many different type of things you can see inside the reflection of the reflection of the reflection. And what we kind of figured out was if you send energy through this in the right way, you can trick the universe into transporting things from one place to another. Because if there's a reflection in a distant place of a thing in, at point A, then the thing has to be, if you send a, ref, a reflection of a thing to point B, then the thing has to be at point A to be reflected to it. Mm-hmm. In in a twisted, weird way. I'm getting this. This sounds confusing because Father Anir is confusing. Uh, yeah, he's explaining to a small child. So you got to remember the way the story's being right. told. The, the oldest weird wizard in the universe explains to a small child who then goes and explains to another small child who then explains it to Severian like a decade later. Right. Mm-hmm. And also that little girl then disappears forever. Well, does she? <laughs> well... She comes but, back. <laughs> uh, right. She comes back and is and is not pleased, right? She comes back and mm-hmm. is in a, a bad way. Is that correct? Am I misremembering Well, you can finish this? the story, and then we'll talk about the end of the story. Okay. Well, the story is this, right? He, he shows her this. Um, uh, he explains, like, hey, yeah, you could touch. You could pet the fish, but don't do it for too long. <laughs> don't do it later, because uh, if you do it later, it could go, it could go bad. He explains that uh, she asks, is this how the cockagens came? Uh, a term that we've we've heard once or twice before at this point, and we'll again hear here shortly. Uh, and uh, he says, okay, well, do you ever get flown around in your mom's flyer? And she's like, of course. And he says, do you know how there are like uh, uh, paper paper airplanes and how paper airplanes are sort of like your mom's flyer, but like way worse? Yeah, well, that is kind of what this little fish trick we're doing is the equivalent of the paper airplane to what the, the you know, the true mirror can do, the, the mirror teleportation device can do. Um, it can travel to the stars. Mm-hmm. It can take us beyond Earth. It can, it can, um, uh, there's a cost to it. It's very hard to do. It's very expensive to do. Uh, she suggests building a big candle to create enough light to do it. And he's like, okay, you can't, the light, light doesn't go faster because the candle is bigger. You're a little <laughs> child. Um, and then he explains again what the, what the function of it is, which I kind of already explained. Uh, and, and that it's a trick of, of the laws of the universe, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he explains <laughs> he explains the theory of relativity to her. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh and then talks about basically lays out uh, a kind of an extrapolative theory for like how you can affect teleportation. Um Right. Right, like using these kinds of reflections. What he says, uh, just because I think it, it it's it's one of these great moments where he says a whole bunch of stuff where both the character listening to it and like you, the reader, are like, what on earth is going on? Like, what is he talking about? What's happening? Uh, and then you get to the end of the whole thing. And then he says, um, basically, or not even, not even basically, right? He just like sort of summarizes it. Um, <clears throat> 
Uh, uh, if the light is from a coherent source, informs the image reflected from an optically exact mirror, the orientation of the wave fronts is the same because the image of the, is the same. Since nothing can exceed the speed of light in our universe, the accelerated light leaves it and enters another. In other words, we've got like a hyperspace thing going on. Mm-hmm. When it slows again, it re-enters ours, naturally, at another place. Is it just a reflection? Domnina asked. She was looking at the fish. Eventually, it will be a real being if we do not darken the lamp or shift the mirrors. For a reflected image to exist without an object to originate it violates the laws of our universe, and therefore an object will be brought into existence. You know, normal stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Borges story which I don't suggest as a, as a solve for this, but it's clearly in conversation with. Uh, Borges explains that in, uh, well, you know, first, of course, there's a, there's a volume of letters between, uh, you know, a Jesuit and a different priest or whatever. But eventually, an academic uh, takes up the study of this thing. And according to him, the fish in the mirror is part of a larger myth that goes back to the legendary times of the Yellow Emperor. In those days, the world of mirrors and the world of men were not, as they are now, cut off from each other. They were, besides, quite different. Neither beings nor colors nor shapes were the same. Both kingdoms, the specular and the human, lived in harmony. You could come and go through mirrors. One night, the mirror people invaded the Earth. Their powers were, their power was great, but at the end of the bloody warfare, the magic arts of the Yellow Emperor prevailed. He repulsed the invaders, imprisoned them in their mirrors, and forced on them the task of repeating, as though in a kind of dream, all the actions of men. He stripped them of their power, of their forms, and reduced them to more slavish, to mere slavish reflections. Nonetheless, a day will come when the magic spell will be shaken off. The first to awaken will be the fish. Deep in the mirror, we will perceive a very faint line, and the color of this line will be like no other color. Later on, the shapes will begin to stir. Little by little, they they will differ from us. Little by little, they will not imitate us. They will break through the barriers of glass or metal, and this time will not be defeated. Side by side with these mirror creatures, the creatures of water will join the battle. uh, In Yunnan, they do not speak of the fish, but the tiger of the mirror. Others believe that in advance of the invasion, we will hear from the depths of the mirror the clatter of weapons. (laughs) Jorge is so good at taking a page and being like, yeah, I can do something with this. (laughs) And then, Uh, uh, yeah, the, yeah, this book is really in conversation with the board. Because the the water people joining in too, that's also going on here. It's pretty. Uh Uh-huh. Well, and then, and then, of course, we don't get, you know, Severin doesn't come back to this story in this section, but we then get a lot about reflections and mm-hmm. twins and a sort of Manichaean self and evil self that he discusses with a character we're about to talk about. Dark tw- I mean, it is, it is the next page, it is the beginning, or two pages later, at the beginning of The Hut in the Jungle, where he says, if it is true that each of us has an anti-polaric brother somewhere, a bright twin if we are dark, a dark twin if we are bright, then that hut was surely uh, such a changeling to one of our cells. <laughs> Manichaeism and, and this sort of, you know, uh, the binary, there, there's another twin out there. There's some reflection of myself, but twisted, but twisted in dark and new metal. <laughs> in Silent Hill. Some sort of Severian Joker. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's me, Severian, baddie boy. <laughs> uh, uh, but this also. My sword has a point, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm Take a sniff of my flower. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> and there's also something here for me about uh, it, it ripples backward in the way that. Uh, uh, so what we talked about in the first episode where uh, the first two chapters are transposed, right? The thing that follows right. is placed before the thing that incites it. Uh, and this is also like this is uh, Father Anir's like argument about teleportation, right? That if we make the effect of the thing, then the laws of the universe will necessitate its cause. Uh, so there's something going on there. And that also for me links up with, um, the way that Severian talks about symbols and like, what do symbols do for us? How do we make them? Do they make us? Um, so yeah, it just like one of the joys of this book is just how, uh, interestingly Wolf manages to like scaffold all these interlocking kind of thematic pieces. Right. Yeah, and and it runs directly into I think some of the presentational stuff too that we've talked about. You know, we're going to talk about Dorcas in a second, and I think we'll probably talk about after that or alongside that, like the the way that gender kind of happens. You know, we've gotten a lot of stuff in the previous two episodes that we've done around Severian's reflections on manhood, boyhood, all that kind of stuff. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's got those hand veins. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got them hand veins, uh, but. You know, there's that going on, and then we get this kind of like, um, I don't know, uh, uh, tripartite um, set of women, you know, by the end of the thing that we've read here. Uh, and there's something going on, I think, with that too, right? If there are symbols, if if Gene Wolfe is giving us a narrator who is constantly telling us about symbols and how they function and how they do stuff, mm-hmm. it might be worth thinking through parts of the text that have a resonant uh, relationship with one another and how they might say things about, say, uh, the relationships between, specifically in this book, men and women. However, before we get to any of that, I want to read the end of the story mm-hmm, because the, the the story that, that Severian is mumbling to himself, it doesn't really end. Like what you, what you just read, Austin, it just kind of trails off. It's like, and she saw the mirrors, right? Because mm-hmm. he gets interrupted. This is what he says. Uh, this is after the uh, hut scene, right? Um, and this is another moment of ambiguity. I'll just read the whole thing. It's on 134 for me. It's the very end of chapter 21. It was like no other I've ever seen. I should have been looking at the roof facets of this building, but instead I saw the flyer he expected to see. At least that's what it seemed like. So he thinks he should have been seeing the the roof of the botanical gardens, but he sees, you know, the sky. That's what I was talking about earlier. Something from somewhere else. A little while ago, I wanted to tell you about a friend of mine who was uh, who was caught in Father Iniri's mirrors. She found herself in another world, and even when she returned to Thecla, that was my friend's name, she wasn't quite sure she had found her way back to her real point of origin. I wonder if we aren't still in the world those people left instead of them in ours. And Adji is like, yeah, I told you. Certain people get attracted to different biospheres. We have right. to keep moving. <laughs> yeah, we gotta keep the the plot has to keep going, Severian. But yeah, she found herself in another world, and even when she yeah. returned to Thecla, she wasn't quite sure she had found her way back to her real point of origin. So something happens to this to, to Dominina, mm-hmm. right? Something something goes on with her uh, in the mirrors, mm-hmm. and we don't know what that is. And that is purposefully left out, mm-hmm. right? And that's worth worth considering too. Uh, there are these gaps, right, in the text. That, well, and uh, and there is a literal, like, distance between the story and this ending, right, which is great. She leaves the text for a chapter, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then suddenly she's returned, and it's, like, a little, like, surprising to have her back 
which it is also in the story surprising to have her back mm-hmm. and it feels strange. And uh, this is a good moment so good. too of thinking about um you know the kind of range touch watchword, right? Texts tell you how to read them. Mm-hmm. You know, texts give you strategies that if you are paying attention to them inform how you're supposed to kind of take the book. And this whole reading that we've talked about so far is full of of things where you you are supposed to read them or or you're given them and they inform previous pieces of the text. When you get to this point, I think I, I, I certainly did this right. I it seems instructive to me. You get to this point, and you go, wait, hold on, how did that story end? Like, mm-hmm. how, how what happened with her? Let's go back and check that out. Right? It, it's a text that encourages uh, flipping back a few pages and revisiting some of the stuff that you've seen before, uh, in order to be like, all right, well, where is that? Um, certainly, when you get to Thecla trying to claw Severian's eyes out. If you're just reading this for fun, not all in one sitting, whatever, it might make you go, wait, hold on. Did I, did I miss that? You know, in this really dense text? No, you didn't miss it. You're only seeing it here for the first time. So the the text is giving you formally, right, within the construction of it as an object, it's telling you how to interact with it in a certain kind of way. Dorcas? Dorcas. That's actually the name of the next chapter. Mm-hmm. It is. Wow. Dorcas. She is a little blonde waif covered in mud. Yeah. All right. Good app. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we <laughs> did it. All there is to say about her. She's certainly not a manatee, which is good. <laughs> I, I love this. I love every part of that. You want to talk about the Lake of the Dead? You want to talk about yeah. this big old lake? Yeah, that's a good intro, actually, to get us into Dorcas. Uh, you you wrote in the notes, uh, Cameron, that we yes. should just mention that Lord of the Rings is all over this uh, here because oh, yeah. this is the Dead Marshes. And this was also, I remember yeah. reading this book the first time and hitting this and being like, oh, crap, this is the Dead Marshes. <laughs> yeah, but not not like uh, ghosted up or anything. It's a literal Dead Marshes, mm-hmm. right? You're like, you're, you're slopping through the thing and you look down and it's like, oh, uh, you know, within Lord of the Rings, it's like, it's kind of a cursed ground and it's kind of like, because what, it's like an ancient battlefield, is that? Yes. I don't remember mm-hmm. the exact yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff there, right? And so it's got this kind of mythical quality to it. This is the most non-mythical, straight up de- de- declarative sentence, right? Like, this is a lake and, and swamp full of dead preserved bodies. End of statement. A sort of briny swamp where people get depo- where corpses get deposited, and where they have been deposited is written down, but seemingly inaccurate because of the foibles of time and manatees. It manatees, and also just it's water. You right. know, this is <laughs> yes. a the the other uh, the one thing I want to say about Lord of the Rings is the other thing that we get at the very beginning, and there's no reason mm. for us to revisit this, but the um uh you know, the uh, conciliator, the claw of the conciliator, right? This gem that's missing, you know, from the end of the last reading we did, it has a mind of its own, right. literally. So that's another kind of Lord of the Ringsism that's going on here. Um, but yeah, this is a, I really like the lake here because it does the double thing. Um, and Severian is very unclear about which of these things is true. So on one hand, this is like, it, it is a uh, lake in the caldera of a volcano, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe Nessus is built on a volcano, mm-hmm. question mark. Or. <laughs> or. <laughs> well, no, let me, let me, let me finish that, that yeah. statement. Built, a, uh, and also we are told by the person who was looking for his wife, Kaz, right? Mm-hmm. Who was buried somewhere here. Um, we are told that there is a tunnel that, that goes from the river, Gaiol, mm-hmm. You know, that, that kind of runs by this place from there to here. 
And he's like, yeah, the corpses keep escaping. They keep finding people, you know, women in the water. They keep finding huge women in the water. <laughs> right? Uh, so, so there's a little bit going on there. Okay, so this is in the botanical garden. It's in one particular space. And this is, I guess, a coherent physical place because it's connected to the external. Okay, cool. And then, go ahead, Michael, the thing you were going to say. Oh, I mean, just, to, just we keep talking about manatees. Also, the reason we know it's open is because he says the manatees keep getting in. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's a real problem. The manatees that's keep getting problem. into our graveyard. Yeah, we had to install alien plants to kill them. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but so the other thing, right, is that we've got this this lake in a uh, volcanic crater, uh, and there is a supposed witch-type person, right, a sibyl called the Cuman, who lives on the other side, who you mentioned, Cameron, uh, the Autark had moved here so he could go consult her for information about the future without having to travel too far. The thing mm-hmm. is, uh, the Cuman uh, is the name of a, a actual historical sibyl, right? The the sibyl of Cumea uh, was a, a, a like prophet, fortune teller uh, uh, in uh, ancient times, uh, particularly specifically on a caldera called uh, is it called the caldera of? Q- I can't remember. All the names get mixed up. In but, uh, this, it's the caldera of Cumean. Okay, I don't um, know if that's true for the historical. Or mythological character. Right. Mm -hmm. So the point is, in the magical land we currently call Italy, uh, right, uh, there there is a a caldera. Some sort of fantastic, (laughs) there used to be a world. Imagine a land in the shape of a boot. I frowned. That's impossible. A land cannot be a boot. Ah, but Severian, you have lived in this tower your whole life. You don't understand. From from a flyer, what world does not look in the shape of a man's hand or a torso? All is in the body of the author. Or an arm, or a finger, or a boot. Uh, So, but does not every boot have a pair, Thecla? Ah, some boots are singular, Severian, as the Autark would say. (laughs) <laughs> oh geez i could write this fucking book whatever uh-huh. it's fun it's fun the other day i described a bathroom in severian talk and it was the most fun i've had in a year so, uh anyway sorry to interrupt anyway so in, yeah. in italy yes right so uh uh, uh there was a an oracle right um at cume uh which was in italy um and there is a caldera there that is filled up with water it's a caldera lake uh, called Avernus, and that like that's just historic. Like what we are getting described is. here in the botanical gardens is not precisely, but extremely close to uh, this specific uh, uh, like situation. In I think was where was, it? was it Greek actually Greek people who colonized Italy? Anyway, uh, this is the point that uh, is did no we call those people italians michael <laughs> no 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 I, and in fact uh i am correct i just double checked this uh because uh she was an apollonian oracle this is thank you wikipedia mm. so <clears throat> uh that's apollo is is greek not uh uh italian so anyway uh yeah like the 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 cumean 
here exists in this book, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. also is a historical figure uh, with this lake and this kind of, in like the Averns, right? These evil plants, obviously uh, uh, related in some way to Avernus, which was uh, not just the name of the lake, but was also, the lake itself was considered a portal to uh, the underworld and Avernus was considered a uh, uh, like level or like domain of the underworld that shows up in Virgil's Aeneid, for instance. Mm-hmm. yeah so so and as severian says right like at the very end wow are we like time and space traveling here you know it, it is a really great indeterminate moment where this is a as you said a historical our universe our world location in time with presumably a figure who existed in our real world smashed into this far future graveyard smashed into um Nessus, right mm-hmm. into the physical location of Nessus. So, uh, because in connected supposedly by a pipe, right? And so, I think if you're looking to solve this book, you got to like make all that stuff fit. I, I don't really care one way or the other, right? It's interesting that all this stuff is happening, um, and that time and space are so intermingled and kind of uh, switched up here that these things can be simultaneously true, right? Um, but we got all these dead people in this lake, and uh, Severian falls in. He wants to grab his sword. Someone tries to drag him down, mm-hmm. and then he gets dragged out by, wouldn't you know it, a character from earlier in the book and a new character, Dorcas. What, what do y'all think about Dorcas, this uh, blonde, short, dirty waif? You say nerdy? Dirty. Dirty. <laughs> She's nerdy. She's nerdy. <laughs> she comes, nerdy and she dirty. comes up with her Funko Pops. <laughs> Um, that would be that's like a real uh, uh, like what what's the uh, thing uh, with stands? What's that? JoJo's. JoJo's? Yeah. Th- that's a JoJo's, which is like mm. the a nerdy waif who anytime you are looking at them, they have a giant wall of Funko Pops mm-hmm. behind them. <laughs> so it like dominates your field of view no matter what. If you if you look them in the face, then you only uh, get Funko Pop wall. Uh-huh. That's a pretty good ability. You know what I mean? <laughs> This is my stand, white and nerdy. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, real. I just want to make sure that I'm not. I, yes. I'm going to stand in as the reader who has who has because I've not finished the series. You know this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm standing in for the first time reader in some ways, even though I've read this section before. Yep. There's a whole chapter named Dorcas, and Dorcas yep. doesn't isn't named until the next chapter, and isn't yep. the focus of that chapter. That yep. chapter is about a character. Uh, looking for someone named Cass, which is half of the name Dorcas. Yeah. And I don't know how you could, uh, we have to say that out loud. We have to yeah. say that the first time reading this, you have to go, now wait a second, is that is that wafy blonde girl, Cass, who has been, who has either been de-aged by the brine of this swamp, or the guy looking for her has been looking for so long that he has aged that much further than she has because he's an old guy and yes. she has been sustained by the swamps. He, he, you know, has been looking for, uh, his wife for like what, 50 years or something like a huge amount of time. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you're, I think in reading these couple chapters, I think you're supposed to be like, okay, I mean, this is how I read it when I read it the first time. She is a corpse. Mm-hmm. Right. We're going to get some like very clear confirmation on that. You know what I mean? I don't think the the, the section 
where that is like fully 100% revealed, but like she's not, she's basically wearing no clothes. She's wearing a burial gown. Mm -hmm. Yes. She is dirty and full of mud. She has no memories. And we get the chap, the chapter stuff, right? Which we know is already revealing parts of the information, you know, key information that's helpful for understanding uh, resurrection and death from the very beginning, all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, so yeah, I think you're, you are, I, I certainly, the first time I read it, I was like, all right, I guess she's from this lake. I actually did not put together the first time I read it, that it was related to this guy at all. Um, I don't know how I didn't do that, but it's a thing you can do. and It's easy to do. I did it. Um, but yeah, so I think you're meant to be like, all right, I guess she is this person. I guess she's a corpse, but Mm -hmm. you don't know what to do with it. I don't think, I mean, I don't know what to do with it. Well, it's, it's it's notable because, uh, the reader can kind of like do this math in their head, but it's something that nobody else in this scene seems interested in parsing out. They're just like, yeah, okay. There's just a muddy girl here now. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It is not a thing. It is not, it, it is all, um, inference on the part of the reader. It is very little uh, 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 exposition on the part of the book, right? <laughs> like, um, and then we, have, uh, of course, later on get the "you are my mother, come again" thing, mm-hmm. um, and and Severian has to do math in order to like for a long time. He's like doing additive sums to figure out who could have a baby and when. <laughs> um, and uh, but but yeah, so a little unclear. We don't know, but I, I think these things are related. It's a weird little moment. We don't really know what to do with it so far. Mm-hmm. And now now we got a little like uh, yet another JRPG character. <laughs> and she is level zero. <laughs> yeah, she is level zero. She is a dirt farmer. <laughs> but she does seem to have a mode where she can become level 20 instantly for a brief moment when she becomes totally aware of everything around her and extremely knowledgeable and able to piece together things severely and can't quite piece together. It just that doesn't happen in, in, for a little while until until the last one of the last chapters of this, right? She comes out of the mud very confused. The only thing she can remember is that she used to be in, uh, sitting in a window, or that's the last thing that mm-hmm. she remembers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then slowly comes comes you know slowly comes awake as she travels with with them to the dueling grounds. Um, there's some great stuff in here that I think is just a completely different type of writing than a uh, different type of writing. But stuff like there's a bit where Agia has to sit at the front of a boat and Dorcas and uh, Severian have to sit in the back. Uh, and there is such a, 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 a sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, like geometrical space that's that's conjured by that. Mm-hmm. The Hildegrin, the, the rower of the boat, sits between... Dorcas uh, and and Severian on one side and Agia on the other side. That's rendered really visually in my mind when I read it. That does the very basic thematic work of separating these characters. You know, that's just like one on one stuff. But it works in a way that's really clear. Um, and I guess mm-hmm. it's a, it's similar stuff to like describing the chariot race earlier. But but it just I don't know. There's there's the tension is physical. It's not just. Mm-hmm. Oh, Agia doesn't like that Dorcas is throwing this scheme into disarray. And one more thing to account for: there is a there. All that stuff ends up being physically rendered. The place that they need to sit at the table, who gets to sit next to who, all of that stuff, and it is it's almost high school stuff, uh-huh. right? It's like who gets yeah. to sit next to Severian? <laughs> yeah, but he's sixteen. It works. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's lunch table <laughs> politics in Hildegrin's boat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's the new kid at school, but then another new kid shows up, and and she's a blonde and a corpse. <laughs> So they and he makes corpses. So uh, they bond instantly. That that's the uh, um, the voiceover, right? Uh huh. It are it it nests high. <laughs> there are the kids who make corpses, and there are corpses. Uh, yeah, and also it seems like uh, it, and this is a thing that when I read this book the first time, I remember so clearly, like reading back and forth across it uh, that. So this is the, it's on 140 for me. It's the end of chapter 23, right? So Terminus Est has fallen into the water and Severian dives after it, okay? As it was, eight or ten cubits beneath the surface, uh, surface, one frantically groping hand encountered the blessed familiar shape of her onyx grip. So he is grabbing Terminus Est with one hand. At the same instant, my other hand touched an object of a completely different kind. It was another human hand, and its grasp, for it had seized my own the moment I touched it, coincided so perfectly with the recovery of Terminus Est that it seems the hand's owner was returning my property to me, like the tall mistress of the Pellerines. I felt a surge of lunatic gratitude, then fear returned tenfold. The hand was pulling my own, drawing me down. Next chapter. With what, with what must surely have been the last strength I possessed, I managed to throw Terminus Est onto the floating track of Sedge and grasp its ragged margin before I sank again. Someone caught me by the wrist. I looked up, expecting Aja. It was not her, but a woman younger still, with streaming yellow hair. Right, so like Dorcas mm-hmm. is now up on the thing, but I I think the implication here, I certainly when I read it the first time, I read back and forth across these things. This is a, a classic moment of Severian just leaving some shit out, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if if Dorcas is a corpse, then Severian is grasping her hand under the water, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then she is on the the shore before he is. Yeah, and has pulled him out seemingly. Yeah, yeah, she's like part of her and Hildegrin help pull him out. Right, right. Hildegrin, of course, a big beef-faced man. Hildegrin is is the goat. Yeah, Hildegrin. Hildegrin the Badger. So good. His business card, Hildegrin the Badger, (laughs) excavations of all kinds by a single digger or 20 score. Stone is not too hard nor mud too soft. Ask on Argosy Street at the sign of the blind shovel or inquire at the uh, at the uh, Altica Mellis uh, (laughs) around the corner on Velaity. Love it. When's uh, Hildegrin showing up in Friends at the Table? I, I uh, probably already have. That's right? what I was oh, like. Okay. Hildegrin is probably the most friends at the table character to uh, yeah. come out of this book so far. I mean, down to when Severian's like, you're the guy who works Votalist. And he's like, would you shut the fuck up? I don't know who Votalist, who's Votalist. Never heard of him. <laughs> Even more than that, he just goes stone faced and drives away. It's so like, good. it is such a like regular show looking scene, right? Where Severian's like, hey, I know this Votalist guy. And he just like, no emotion turns around and begins pushing his boat away. So funny. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's good. Yeah. He's like well, helpful and shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole thing here is like he has a boat that's big enough to carry all of them because the yeah. previous guy only had a little, a little, I truly am imagining like a tears of the kingdom piece of wood that he is rowing <laughs> around on looking for his dead wife's yeah. corpse. It's and like then, in the water. It's like, like it's, yes. it, it, he's barely floating. Yes, exactly. 
Um, uh, and then, and then Hildegrid rolls up and is like, yeah, I have a boat. Cause what I do is I come in here to dig things up. I go anywhere to dig things up. I'll dig stuff up wherever you need me to dig stuff up. Mm-hmm. Uh, which re- recall, what did we first see this character do? Great. Dig something up in the, uh, in the, the initial necropolis. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that's uh, how it hey, did you, did you notice the thing that happens where Severian replicates Vodalus? Oh, I did not. What's he do? So Severian's going, we'll talk about the Averns in a minute, but Severian goes to get the Avern, right? And uh, he has, in the he he has Hildegrin take the women mm-hmm. in retreat, right. which is the same thing Vodalus does mm. with Hildegrin. He has, he has uh, Vodalus tells Hildegrin to take Thea and go do something else to leave. Mm-hmm. That's very good. It, he he replicates Vodalus, uh, maybe on purpose, maybe not. It's again, another moment of, you know, kind of twinning mm-hmm. that we've mm-hmm. talked about. Uh, already other stuff uh, about Dorcas here, like as a character, you know, she, she's following along over the course of the rest of the thing. Uh, um, mm-hmm. oh, I, was yeah. just, I mean, I think the main thing to observe about Dorcas at this point is that she is clearly being uh, uh, utilized here as a foil to Agia uh, because mm-hmm. she is like, they are contrast, right? Uh, they are so contrastive. Um, Dorcas is quiet and soft. Uh, not to say that she doesn't have opinions, because there's that, like, discussion she and Severian have about, like, how much good and evil there is in the world and everything. Um, yeah, but, but she's philosophically opinionated. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, she is uh, quieter, softer. Uh, 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 you know, the fact that we I called her a, a waif or whatever, like, that is that is her character note, is that she is a, she is physically smaller and her personality is uh concomitantly like smaller softer whereas Agia is very like forward like we need to do this we need to do this like what what is taking so long and Dorcas is really just I don't know where I am or what's going on really I'm just here thanks for taking me to dinner <laughs> yep um on the way to get this flower um there is this great moment we already kind of gestured at this and joked about it with the from from a flyer, all things look like a boot. But we get another just great thing where he's like, I wondered the dim light and recalled Hildegrin's remark of a moment before, a remark that implied, though quite possibly he did not know it, that the Seeress's cave and thus this garden was on the opposite side of the world. There, Master Malrubius had taught us long ago, all was reversed, warmth to the south, cold to the north, light at night, dark by day, snow in summer. And it's like, yeah, no, that's how, yeah, it's hemispheres. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, this is a real thing that you've rendered magical by your ignorance of it and by your the, the way you write. You know, I, I, I love how that creates additional ambiguities around a lot of stuff. Uh, it's another, it's a rocket ship moment in some ways, yeah. except yeah. that instead of being rocket ship, it's just living in South America versus North America. <laughs> Yeah, it's good old-fashioned estrangement, right? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it, what what are the functions of, of language that you can use to yep. make the fil- familiar unfamiliar? Um, also, this is exactly how I talk about Australia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some sort of warp world <laughs> reality. A world where the toilet water goes counterclockwise <laughs> down the drain. <laughs> Mr. Malrubius once told me of a land of magnificently large spiders <laughs> in vast trackless wastes. Uh, Within which was a rock that created a world of dreams, right? Like, we can do this thing. Right. Yep. Anyway. And also, the toilet water went back. Right, yeah. <laughs> he goes to get this thing, uh, uh, unless we have more on Dorcas right now. 
Is no, I, Dorcas will be someone I think for the next piece. Yeah, uh, you know, for the final episode of this uh, of this book that we'll return to probably pretty significantly. But just to reiterate what Michael said really briefly, uh, we she is being set up as a complete and opposite of uh, Agia, right? Mm-hmm. Agia is materialistic, shop owner, uh, sexual, uh, has the boob out, right, mm-hmm. and is constantly trying to sleep with uh, Severian, and, and is literally dressed in a uh, party outfit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it mm-hmm. is a cheap sequin. You know, it's kind of like a New Year's Eve dress kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that. And then you've got Dorcas who is barely clothed and yet is unse- completely non-sexual, right? Like none of that, uh, has no memory, has no desire, has no sense of materialism whatsoever. In fact, only has conversations about weird abstract philosophy, has no history and no baggage to her importantly, right? Has no brother, nothing mm. like that. And so they are as as opposite as possible. Remember that thing that Severian said about having the polar opposite version of yourself somewhere well, in the world? Right. <laughs> and and this is what their philosophical conversation ends up being about, right? right. Um, uh, I'm going to just read this because I think this is interesting to think about uh, all the events thus far in this chapter and in this book and going forward. Um, uh, she, she is saying to him, she's setting it up uh, – other people are like, are you scared? Or, you know, Hildegard's like, are you scared about, about going to the duel? And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not scared. I don't have any, there's nothing, whatever. You're mistaken. I wasn't thinking about dueling. I wasn't thinking about dying. And then in my ear, too softly, I think for even Hildegard to hear, Dorcas said, yes, you were. Your face was full of beauty, of a kind of nobility. When the world is horrible, then, th- uh, when the world is horrible, then thoughts are high, full of grace and greatness. I looked at her thinking she was mocking me, but she was not. The world is filled half with evil and half with good. We can tilt it forward so that more good runs into our minds or back so that more runs uh, into this. A movement of her eyes took in all the lake. But the quantities are the same. We change only their proportion here or there. I would tilt it back as far as I can until at last the evil runs out altogether, I said. It might be good that it would run out, but I am like you. I would bend time backward if I could. Nor do I believe that beautiful thoughts or wise ones are engendered by external troubles. I did not say beautiful thoughts, but thoughts of a, of a grace and greatness, though I suppose it is a kind of beauty. Let me show you. She lifted my hand and slipping it inside her rags, pressed it to her right breast. I could feel the nipple as firm as a cherry and the warmth of the gentle mound beneath it, delicate, feather soft, and alive with racing blood. Now, she said, what are your thoughts? If I have made the external world sweet to you, aren't they less than they were? Where did you learn all this? I asked. Her face was drained of its wisdom, which condensed in crystal drops at the corners of her eyes. So, big uh, sexualization again here, mm-hmm. uh, going back to it. She right. she recognizes herself as a sexual object, even though she is not an, uh, a, an agent of desire. She doesn't have... Right. Uh, voice desire herself. She understands that Severian is someone who has desire, mm-hmm. and she is arguing the case that the world shapes our our positions on things, our feelings on things. Um, that it is not as simple as uh, the there is a self, and then there is another more evil self, or that there is uh, that that the 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 self is this like completely coherent thing. The self is contingent on perspectives. Yeah. Um, and he's like, I don't, where'd you learn all this? And then of course my favorite kind of rejoinder to this is in the middle of a, a, pl- a place that we're approaching soon, 
he will see Agia, uh, Severin will see Agia struck by a light so beautiful that he forgives her for everything she's done. Yeah. Um, and and again, like the way the text is is interested in a worldview that reduces people down to very simple, um, you know, binary forms, or even even if it's not necessarily a binary form, it's it's simple and understandable and solvable, and then instantly complicates that. Yeah, I mean, this is the closest we've had to a character saying to the reader, hey, 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 remember, you know, Severian is being affected by the world that he's in. Yeah, and and context matters. And 20 minutes after that he has this experience with Agia, he will hit her so hard in the face she falls down. Yes, yes. Right, and have no remorse or feeling about it. She is annoying to him. And embarrassing him in public, and yep. so he hits it, right? Like, these two things are in one guy, mm-hmm. right? Yep. You know, and there is no, the text makes no effort and uh, in, in is uninterested wholly in trying to resolve that into, like, is Severian good or bad, right? You know, like, that's not a moral question that the text is presenting to us, although obviously we have to have that, um, you know, we have a response ourselves, right? Uh, but, well, it's like but, he's he's heard this. He's heard that there might be a good version of you and a bad version of you, and right. missed the point that that's the same person, and right. that you don't get to just tw- t- twist your head back to make the make yourself be the good version the whole time, and that you need to be aware <laughs> of yourself. And he's right. just like, well, I'm the good one, so uh, when I want to slap Agia, I can just do that. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is a. Self narrative, mm-hmm. yes. you know, it is a, and it is underwritten, you know, truly it's not reflected on. It happens in a paragraph and it's moved on from really quickly. Um, uh, but it actually, it has effects, right? She leaves, she like mm-hmm. scrambles away after that, uh, and kind of abandons him and all kinds of other stuff happens. Also notable about this scene, right? Dorcas, as you said, Dorcas recognizes herself as a sexual like person, right? That she can incite desire in mm-hmm. another human being and Severian specifically here. But it's also kind of the sexuality of a saint, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it, yeah. it is not, she has no interest here in, you know, especially um, compared to Agia, right? Who is like at one point somewhere around right here in the same space, right? In the inn, she like, lets her dress fall down again that she's trying to hold up all the time and is like, you know, provocatively uh, trying to seduce uh, Severian again. Right. You know, we literally have the mirror of this scene happen in the same location Uh Um, and it presents two different kinds of models. Right. Um, Now, what do we do with these two models? You you know, I think a lot of people get hung up on like uh, if, if Gene Wolfe writes sexist scenes, is Gene Wolfe a sexist? And I think that we can have that conversation. Um, but it, it seems pretty clear to me that Gene Wolfe is setting up a bunch of different parameters of the ways that sexism function mm-hmm. um, through Severian, and we need to dig through that and talk about that, and that'll continue through at least the next three books, if not all of them. Um, and, and it's not, I think, in final sum total, when we have read all of the Book of the New Sun, I do think, unfortunately, that we we have some answers uh-huh. about the worldview of women that come down, yeah. or, or Gene Wolfe's narratorial worldview of women. I think that unfortunately we do have some clearer answers at the end, but here we're getting some paradigms being set up and those paradigms kind of run into one another. Um, and ultimately through the narrative device of Severian, it is images of different kinds of women ping ponging off of one another, um, in the way like the lives of the saints would have. Right. Or, uh, if you think about like, um, uh, the Arthurian legends, right? Oh. That there are these people who are character types who then ping off of one another for a character to make decisions about 
Michael, you might have more to say about that since that is kind of more your realm than mine. I mean, I, I think the actual simplest way to frame it is that there's uh, a little bit of like virgin whore dichotomy going on here, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's just yeah. like, yeah. Uh, it's when you say that Dorcas's sexuality is saint-like, I think that's, you know, it's not the lack of sexuality, but there's something about the way that her sexuality is used to draw attention to her flesh, the blood that is running through it, right? The kind of, um, mm-hmm. uh, a, a kind of life force and a kind of physicality that extends beyond mere like desire and like pro- provocation right so yeah. um that's where i i think we can uh, uh maybe hold this for now because yeah there's going to be much more to say about this later yeah it's all going to cash out in very in short-term ways and in long-term ways mm-hmm. and i mm-hmm. think that from those we can s- make statements about how these books think women and ultimately how these books think men too there there's a lot going on there as well we just don't i wouldn't say we get much of that through up until the next book, actually, The Claw of the Conciliator, is where we get the most significant big interventions there. Mm-hmm. He gets the Zavern. Mm-hmm. It's a tricky situation because it's a big poison flower and all the the petals on the flower is are, are poison. So uh, And are sh- razor sharp. <laughs> and, and they'll dig into you and like race for your heart. Or yes. Right. <laughs> what if a plant was made out of a bunch of poison glass? That's alive. Yeah. yeah. It's good. This is great. This is the good stuff, stuff of him being like, all right, do I want a little plant? So it's like easy to maneuver. Or do I want a big, a big one. So I have reach is great. Real picking your weapon uh, at the Bushido blade character select screen hours. <laughs> oh yeah. Absolutely. This is, this is uh dynasty warriors. Pick your general time. A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, it is fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's it's nice that a, a Severian like looks at it and he's like, hmm, this is an alien plant. Like, that's not what he thinks. Right. But like uh, uh, there is something about it that is so unearthly, like literally unearthly that it's just like this. This has to have been an import from the time. This is a thing that maybe we haven't uh, foregrounded as much for those not reading along as we've gotten at this point, a couple of references to the fact that uh, people in general, like on Earth, used to have some sort of interstellar empire or empires, and those days are mm-hmm. gone. Like, people don't go mm-hmm. to space anymore. That's one of the reasons why mm-hmm. the, the there's something significant about the Citadel being a bunch of uh, unlaunched spaceships, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So Severian sees this thing and he has this conceptual category in which he can just immediately slot it, which is like, oh, this is a this is something that was brought from an uh, from another star. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, also, he can't help but uh, in this circumstance, which we've described as being cool as, as hell, he can't help but write down while describing these sick alien murder plants above these leaves, the half closed white blossoms we had seen from across the lake seem creations of pure beauty, virginal fantasies guarded by a hundred knives. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's a, that's grown Severian writing that down. Mm-hmm. So maybe he's he's saying this is what it felt like at the time. They were wide and lush, and their petals curled in a way that should have seemed tussled, if it, if it had not formed a complex swirling pattern that drew the eye like a spiral limbed on a revolving disc. All right, dude. All right, we get Buddy, it. They won't even let the autark take the flower. <laughs> Because it would kill him, uh, is the yeah. thing. So well, and the thing notably too, right, is that I, I, there's a little fun inference to be made here, right? Because the reason that Averns are here 
is that the manatees were coming from the river and fucking with the burials. <laughs> uh-huh. They were like bumping all the all the corpses around, and you can't have that, right? So they, I do like the idea that they had to like go to another world to find a flower that would kill manatees. Mm-hmm. There's something fun about that. There's also something delightful, like truly, you know, th- this is a, the Wolfian maneuver here, right? It's never said explicitly in, in terms of like, this is never made clear, right? But uh, Severian sees manatees still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? For all through. of the power of the autark, for the universal domination of the human species or whatever we're calling a human these days, right? For all of that, the capability to travel through mirrors to other worlds and dominate time and space, you can't kill a fucking manatee, right? Mm-hmm. Like all the power in the world still cannot keep the manatees from bumping the corpses around. Uh, My liege, I've brought great. us the flowers of disillusion, which by the way, that's the name of this chapter. It's yeah. sick as shit. And <laughs> finally, we will we will fend off the manatee menace. No, didn't work. Sorry. Didn't work. Father Aniri is out here like conjuring shit from mirrors <laughs> and can't figure out how to build like a grate to put on like the outflow here. <laughs> really it <laughs> truly is you can't build a, a great but that's also delightful mm-hmm. right like that yes. is the there's this playful sea cow creature that cannot from all of the power all of the capability all of the domination and imperialist force all of that cannot keep the delightful little sea cow out of your corpse garden <laughs> it's good like and there's a philosophical i think thrust to that right mm-hmm. that um, you know, uh, there's this John Hammond, the philosopher John Hammond once said, um, that, uh, dino DNA, uh-huh. but you know what I mean? Uh-huh. I mean, it's a similar kind of Manatees vibe. Manatees find right? a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. I get it. Yeah, I gotcha. Uh, but I like this version more than life finds a way, unfortunately. Oh, you know, the, um, it's it, it worth saying very briefly, uh, the fact that this is the place you put your, cor- some corpses, question mark, and also yeah. the, um, this is the warp zone to the Oracle um, also indicates that these gardens are not just like curated uh, hol- holodeck, you know, zones for, mm-hmm. for uh, observation and, and play. Um, they, they serve other institutional functions, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that's interesting and, and becomes clear as we start to get into talking mm-hmm. about things like why they need to keep the manatees out. Because if it was just, Oh, they're getting into this one zone, and that makes it like not an, uh, a great place to go visit. That would be fine, but the fact that this is this is a space that serves a, a purpose for the Altark um, mm-hmm. and for people who bury people here, I guess, uh, is is an interesting twist on what the botanical gardens are for. Mm-hmm. And and the manatees also. They, here's the the other story, right? Because all of this is kind of hearsay. No one really knows how any of this works, right? Mm-hmm. This is just expectation. What if we flip it? What if the manatees don't come from the river? The manatees are an inherent part of the place. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're a thing you can't extract because much like the Cuman, right, that they are part of the deal. You know, they are summoned up in the same way the fish is summoned up in the mirror, mm-hmm. right? It's in there. It's part mm-hmm. of the thing. We don't know. Like, can we talk really briefly about the the sand, uh, sand world? <laughs> sure. Oh, did we skip Sand World? Yeah, we talked about it briefly, right? But uh, Severian, the first one they go into is it's being renovated. Yes. They literally see <laughs> guys so with like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, uh, plumbers with construction hats on or whatever, right? It's like workaday guys going in with a wheelbarrow being yeah. like, all right, we're making Sand World over here. 
big construction sign, you know, on the thing. And they go into the sand world and there's nothing. It's just sand. And Severian dissociates for like a watch, right? Which mm-hmm. is a long, I guess an hour. Mm-hmm. It's more than Typical that. experience of the Dune reader. <laughs> uh, I think a watch is like two hours or 90 minutes or something like that. I forget okay. how I know this. Probably by looking this up the first time I read. That's my guess. Yeah, it's, it's come up enough times that I bet that you could figure it out. Yeah, you know yeah, yeah. I mean? uh, but I don't know if the dome. But yeah, what did what'd y'all make of this? What did you think about this? I don't know. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Want to go there? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, if we're talking about like, what does this say about Severian? That Sever- if, if these gardens like capture certain people, certain personalities or whatever, um, what does it mean that the thing? Well, I mean, mm. we get may- maybe the sense like that anything that Severian saw in these gardens kind of catches him a little bit. But the thing that yeah. definitely catches him the hardest is a vast expanse of nothing. Yeah. Well, maybe they're going to make it into something, and maybe that's part of the... No, that's not... You think it's just the obliteration, the oblivion that's caught him? <laughs> the absolute I, eradication of all life on Earth? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the thing, is like, there are... This is the trickiness, right? There, I think there's a pretty clear answer to this, but it's not one we have right now. Mm-hmm. But there, I think I think I can tell you there is an answer to mm-hmm. this. And that he's waiting for the worm. <laughs> Where are my worms at? On their way. Dune hive rise up. <laughs> Dune hive rise up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yeah, I, I it's notable. And also she just like is constantly in his ear while he's like looking at the, the sand is being like, oh, can we go to the garden of delectations now? And he's like, hold on, I'm sand looking one moment. <laughs> can we go we'll back get the sand? Can we go back to the sand place, please? Yeah. It's it's that text message uh, Muadib time, you know what I mean? <laughs> Desert power. Put a little of them. That's right. Um, but yeah, so I, we'll return to this at some point. But it is notable. I don't know if we had more to say about it. Sounds like it's just cool. Yeah, and I agree. Yeah, it's at cool. this point, it's just yeah. cool. At this point, I mean, yeah, I just I think it's it's we we've got a again some contrasts. We've got all these lush jungles, all these plants, so on and so forth. But the thing that really hits Severian. The hardest so much that he dissociates is the nothingness. Right. Um, the uh, I guess the last two things we need to talk about, like in, in depth, if we wanted to, are uh, the. Inn of Lost Loves, mm-hmm. I'm just having to look for the name, which mm-hmm. is the inn they go to. I every this is this is again, we're like back to uh, what's the genre, Michael, that that you oh, pointed out to us last time. We're in the picaresque uh-huh. again, right? Absolutely. Like we, we went to some like science fiction fantasy thing going on here in the botanical gardens, but when we were back in like workaday Nessus, we're in the, the picaresque. I'm sure you probably have things to say about this. And then we actually have the duel itself. Those are, I guess, the two major events that we need to talk about here. Before the end of the episode, uh, what do we think about this inn? It is sim- no doors on it. It's a big treehouse. <laughs> it's a big treehouse. It's just a big, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like the end. It's like it's like Endor. It's like yes. the Ewoks, except it's an inn that you could try to sleep with your not girlfriend at, but be a little embarrassed because the other girl that you're kind of crushing on is too nearby for you to make a move. Yeah, this entire chapter is like simultaneously just very straightforward. Like 
we the three of us went to an inn and had dinner uh and on the <laughs> other hand extremely disorienting because of things like that little note and like severian having to take time out to do the math to figure out who could possibly have a child old enough to write this note uh and just uh, uh, the way in which, and I, I've actually seen in response to the show, I've seen some people who are reading these books for the first time who have talked about this. And I just want to pull it out to say that, like, yeah, this is the experience of reading this. Uh, there is a way in which your first time reading these books, you can just be totally lost in terms of, like, what is happening? And, like, what am I, like, I'm being told these things, but I don't have the context to sort of figure out what I'm supposed to do with them. And I don't know why the characters think they're so important and, like, why they won't tell me that they're important. Uh, mm. So, you know, that's that's this chapter for me is uh, something very clear and straightforward is happening and simultaneously something very bizarre and mysterious is happening. And we get some answers to that in pretty short order. Uh, but in the, the the point, I guess I would want to make is that there is a more straightforward way to have written the intrigue that happens here. Right. Like we're at the mm -hmm. inn having dinner. We get a mysterious note. We figure out who wrote it and like what they're trying to warn us about like that. That works on its own. There is something about the presentation here uh, that is really like uh, uh, offbeat. Right. And that I think is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, this chapter has three of my favorite things in fiction. One is a mystery, which we've covered, which is this letter that they get. Uh, two is uh, some sort of uh, a, a ephemeral note about local legislation. <laughs> the reason this place is a treehouse yes. is because you're not allowed to build buildings so close to the wall around Nessus. Uh, so it can't have walls or a roof. But they've built a bunch of platforms and a big tray and a kitchen and other stuff. Uh, and therefore it's good. And then the third thing I love in fiction is sentences like the sun's dead and don't know it yet, but we do, mm -hmm. which is this again, fat phobic chef character, um, the innkeeper uh, who's like, I had to make a, I had to make a restaurant uh, that has the best food in the world. Cause that's all I can eat. <laughs> uh, so I may as well do it. Um, uh, and, uh, and is talking about the time of the year is talking about the season, uh, but also is clearly talking about the world, <laughs> right? The sun is dead and don't know it yet, but we do, mm -hmm. uh, which is great. It's good. Yeah. Uh, we also get like more Severian woman thoughts here, I guess. Uh, we get my favorite Severian women thoughts moment, <laughs> which is um, uh, this is, I believe, in the middle of Agia literally throwing herself onto him. Um, uh, she's like, are you going to look at me? Like my bodice is totally ripped <laughs> off. And he's like, I am looking. Her torn bodice had fallen again. And she's like, not there. Cover that with your hand. And then you can look at the note. Um, and in the middle of all of this, he's like, have I mentioned the Shaolin Thecla to you? Severian, <laughs> 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 stop it. <laughs> hey, let uh, me tell you about my old girlfriend. I killed. Yeah. Exactly. I loved her. She read a great deal. There was really nothing for her to do when I was gone but read and sew and sleep. And when I was with her, we used to laugh at the plots of some of the stories. This sort of thing was always happening to the people in them. And they were incessantly involved in high and melodramatic affairs for which they had no qualifications. Shut up. <laughs> Please, Severian. Please just make out with the woman who wants to kill you. <laughs> nope. Yeah, I, I just want to read some. Uh, this is, again, like Severian's like women thoughts. Uh, 
<clears throat> when we are taught, this is after he uh, sees Ajia and, she, and he's like, dang, she's hot for one of the many times he does that. When we are talking to women, we notice he's saying we here also, right? Yeah, uh-huh. We talk as though love and desire are two separate entities and women who often love us and sometimes desire us maintain the same fiction. The fact is that they are aspects of the same thing, as I might have talked to the innkeeper of the north side of the tree uh, of his tree in the south. If we desire a woman, we soon come to love her for her condescension in submitting to us. This indeed had been the original foundation of my love for Thecla. And since we since if we desire her, she always submits in imagination, at least some element of love is ever present. On the other hand, if we love her, we soon come to desire her since attraction is one of the attributes a woman should possess. Sidebar. Thanks, fucking Aristotle. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That is an attribute that a woman should possess. Um, And we cannot bear to think she is without any of them. In this way, men come to come to desire even women whose, and this is some ableism, whose legs are locked in paralysis, and women to desire those men who are impotent save with men like themselves. So, uh, some... Also some homophobia. Get them them both out of the park there. Uh Uh, But I bring that up because it very shortly precedes a moment where uh, Dorcas runs up, and this is the end of the chapter, Dorcas runs up behind uh, Severian and like whispers in his ear two things. One, she apologizes uh, for actually interrupting uh, earlier when Severian and uh, Asia were getting ready to do stuff because she's, uh, uh, Dorcas gets cleaned up, right? They get her like a wash tub Mm -hmm. and stuff and she's like cleaning herself behind a screen. And then she pops out later. Um, but then she also says to Severian, straight up, I love you. Everybody's always falling in love with Severian. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yep. Yep. So I just think, yep. uh, 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 just notable again that we're getting a, a repetition of these ideas, these themes like bifurcation of people versus unification, uh, uh, perception and thought and how those things intermingle in this case, uh, how they intermingle in ways that are uh, basically just about uh, all the ways that a woman can produce an anxiety in a man. And then it gets topped off with a woman popping up and for saying for almost no apparent reason, by the way, I love you. Right. Suddenly mm-hmm. it's Dorcas who's saying this. It's after Severian talking about how we read men uh, uh, interact with women. We get this woman who just says, I love you, by the way. And she's specifically saying it as part of an apology for having interrupted he and and Adria, mm-hmm. right? Yes. For, quote unquote, taking his joy away. I would not have deprived you, she says. Uh, we also get Severian explaining that there are kind of t- there's two types of women uh, to love in the world. Oh, yeah. uh, there's two types of actions that you take. Um, there's a there's a real difference between those women to whom, if we are to remain men, we must offer our lives, and those who, again, if we're to remain men, we must overpower and outwit if we can, mm-hmm. and use as we would ne- as we never would a beast that the second will never permit us to give them that which we gave the first. And this is him talking about Dorcas and Agia. This is the Madonna whore stuff. Mm-hmm. This is like, you know, there are some women who you would die for. And there's other women who you have to dominate mm-hmm. uh, is, is the way Severian sees the world, again, as a writer writing this text. For the audience, which, again, you, you've identified here, he slowly starts to reveal who his 
expected audiences. It's men. At the beginning of the next chapter, he opens up by saying, the sanguinary field of which all my readers will have heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so it's men of Nessus or men who understand this part of Nessus. Um, uh, and, 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 and uh, no monomar- class men too, and upper- right? Exactly. Yes. Yes. So, uh, he's, he is kind of the Joe Rogan of the day, you know, yeah. he's, he's really trying to unpack what it means to be a man in this world. Yeah. Well, what it means is, uh, hand to hand combat to the death, which may seem pretty bad, but actually probably rules, you know, newsflash, uh, duels. Oh okay. Says man who wins duel. <laughs> <laughs> Duel's okay, says man who wants to defend the uh, autocratic government he's in charge of because it, it is a way of getting rid of the weaklings and leaving behind those who are strong enough to defend the state. I mean, look, if you just let murder happen, then what if the wrong guy gets murdered? What if the wrong guy gets murdered? What if the weaker or what if the strong guy gets murdered? Yeah. Yeah, no, this That's this whole section is so funny because he spends so long talking about how uh, and, and in the show notes, Cameron, you pointed out that this is like eugenicist discourse. Right. And it's something that Severian it literally has, is. Yeah. Severian has it around him like all the time. And his entire argument is like, you know, the dual system is actually pretty good because it just means that uh, all the weaklings will be slaughtered and the people who are left over will be uh, uh, warriors of honor or whatever. And they'll be committed to defending the state. Uh, so on and so forth, all the while either totally ignoring one or two, totally oblivious to the fact that he is at this moment in his own narrative entrapped in the dual system (laughs) by people who are exploiting it to work their own ends, right? Like this is a system that people have figured out how to use to like rob people, right? Uh, And he cannot... Uh, uh, really bring those two things together in his mind. And and could we find a more perfect example of someone who would not lay their life down for the state than Agia and Agilis? Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure if the Assians from the North arrived, they would lay their lives down. <laughs> They'd be the first of the front lines. Get the fuck out of here. I need to protect my, my precious dual fields. <laughs> Uh, more than more luck with the sea monster, you know. <laughs> yeah. See you, everybody. Did did we talk about the uh, the way the inn makes its money? We didn't. Do you want to explain it? It's very it's good. Just, uh, so yeah, so people come and uh, because the duels happen at the golden hour, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, they happen as the sun is going down, as like the last watch or something like that. You know, it's timed with the gates, basically, mm-hmm. and the gate opening and closing times for the city. And basically, you come and you pre-order your dinner to eat after the duel, yes. and half of the people who pre-order the dinner never show back up to eat the dinner, <laughs> and that's how they make their money. Yep. And you have to prepay most you of it. You have to prepay, yeah. Yeah. It's like See, the you know? GameStop pre-order every day. <laughs> uh-huh. You got to put that $5 down. If you had to go out into the GameStop uh, front uh, parking lot and duel with the other gamers <laughs> before going back in for your pre-order. Look, I've told I've told people in in some podcasts before about uh, going to the local comic book shop in college and watching Vampire the Masquerade RPers in the parking lot in 100 degree heat in the middle of the summer in Georgia, just whipping each other's asses in full Matrix gear. Uh, so yeah, I've seen it. I've seen this exact thing happen. I've lived it, Cameron. So as oh, a that's former right. Vampire the Masquerade warper, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, that's yeah. right. 
you were in, you were you were like Morpheus Stout. You were. I was extremely shades. all the yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it was the coolest I've ever been. I'm certain. <laughs> Hanging around the LIR station uh, and and role playing a Malkavian vampire with my friends. <laughs> cool. Mm-hmm. When we inevitably do the shelf by genre uh, live show, we, come, we should come yeah, in full costume. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, yeah. of course. I got to start lifting weights. I got to start looking. I got to start beefing up a little bit if I'm doing the severe. We should all do our own severe. (laughs) (laughs) The looks will be very different. Oh, that would be great. That would be so good. I'm laughing in my heart. (laughs) You know, Um, I wrote a note here that says the man in the arena because I thought something in this book reminded me of the like, uh, like the the man in the arena speech, yeah. you know, oh. that like people do that is so embarrassing to to see anyone say. And I've just looked on the page I put down. I have no idea what the fuck I was talking about. Is it that not isn't... the same stuff? The Genesis fascist stuff? Yeah, not I, guess it, I guess oh, no, it no, no, is. No. It's in here. It's in here. It's in the it's it's when he's like. People love to the there's lots of people who come to the to the dueling grounds and one subset of them are I found it. Here it is. This is I don't have a page because I'm reading an ebook, but it's a couple pages before chapter 27. Is he dead? Um uh not everybody who shows up comes to fight. You understand, most are only going to watch. There's some who only come once because somebody they know is fighting, or just because they were told about it or read about it or heard a song. Usually those get taken ill because they come here and generally put away a bottle or so when they're getting over it. But there's others that come every night, or anyway, four or five nights out of the week. They're specialists, and only fo- and only follow one weapon, perhaps two, and they pretend to know more about those than those that use them. Uh, which which perhaps some do. After your victory, sir, two or three will want to buy you a round if you let them. They'll tell you what you did wrong and what the other man did uh, did wrong, but you'll find they don't agree. Uh, and he's identified like 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 wrestling like smarks, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, he's identified people who are like show up and try to talk game about the duels as expert fans, like the the sort of Monday morning quarterbacks yes. of of dueling to the death. It's so good. Oh, I just like I I would have infinite respect to like the aggrieved game developer who like you know whatever the next Friday is like. They didn't understand the game and then just post that long text. <laughs> Infinite more respect. If you're going to man in the arena, me, man in the arena, uh, autark my ass. Autark, you know what yeah, I'm saying? Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Oh, really go so for good. it. But I just, I thought that was really, thanks for reading the whole thing because I, uh, I like that mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the monomaki, y'all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a duel, uh, duel with flowers. Uh, they it, throw the petals and they hit in the air it's, like it's Dragon Ball yes. Z or something. Every part of this is cool, right? The idea that you have to carry the thing or the most efficient way of carrying the thing is getting a big pole and putting it on top like a banner. Mm-hmm. And so you can, and Severian identifies the other fighter by being like, where's that fucking flower? And it's like way above other people's heads. Yes. He's like, there's my guy. He's coming. That's cool. That's good. When people talk about this being unadaptable, no way. <laughs> no you can, way. You can do no this. Easy. And yeah. this is why. Right. Yeah. Yes. Well, then they start like because it's straight anime right. stuff. They start right? like plucking the flowers and they're throwing them like throwing yes. stars. Yes. yes. Or the leaves, <laughs> rather. Right. They're <laughs> like, whoosh-ah, whoosh-ah. yeah, yeah. 
It's like little daggers, and they like I I love the actual description of the fighting because because you're fighting with the Avern, you know how to hold the Avern. So part of the fight, that a tactic you could do is charging your opponent and grabbing their own flowers yes. and hitting them in the face with it, <laughs> which is great. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, and and he's learning it as he does it, right? Like he streaks, mm-hmm. he hits the guy on the hand, but the guy has the gauntlet on, so that doesn't get the kill, obviously. And he says, "The last discover I put to the test." Out, or he says, uh, it, "It put the vulnerable stem out of my opponent's reach, permitted me to slash downwards with the whole plant, yet allowed me to detach leaves with my right hand." This last discovery I put to the test at once, snapping off a leaf and sending it skimming towards his face. Despite the protection his helm gave him, he ducked and the crowd behind him scattered to avoid the missile. People are around and they got to get out of the way of these leaves because they're ninja stars. I followed it with another and then another, which struck his own in flight. The result was remarkable. Instead of absorbing the other's momentum and clattering down together as inanimate blades would, the leaves appeared to writhe and wind their edged lengths about each other, slashing and striking with their points so rapidly that before they had fallen a cubit, they were no more than ragged strips of blackish green that turned to a hundred colors and spun like a child's top. <laughs> Bro! <laughs> like the eight- <laughs> They threw the ninja stars at each other and they fought each other in the air like Beyblades! Yeah, like the, the murderous, poisonous alien plants that when their leaves meet, they fight each other and then erupt into rainbows? <sighs> Yeah, because they're patterned, right? too. Yes. Like, we got to remember that, right? They still have this, like, you know, whatever, uh, solid snake splitter camo <laughs> pattern on them. Yes. Uh, and while that, watching this, his plant comes alive like a dog and attacks him. We don't know yeah, that right away yeah. because he just, in the middle of the, at the, that description I just read, ends with an ellipsis. And then something or someone was pressing against my back. It was though it was as though an unknown uh, an unknown stood close behind me, his spine against mine, exerting a slight pressure. I felt cold and was grateful for the warmth of his body. Severian, the voice was Dorcas's doing her Otacon impression. Severian, Severian, <laughs> Severian. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, but she seemed to have wandered away. Severian, won't anyone help him? Let me go. Uh, and Severian has has been has seemingly been killed, except like the Undertaker, I sat up. <laughs> <laughs> Which raises the question, because ten pages ago or whatever, he's like, you know, I wonder if these plants are poisonous to the people of the world they're from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so you have to ask, is Severian not from our world? Right. It, it has not been made unclear to us that these plants no. are lethal as shit. <laughs> like, the fact that Severian pops back up here is uh, anomalous, to say the least. Yes. Yeah, well, so what do you think, Austin, give us the, the two sentences, because I know what happens here. There's a little bit of a trickery. Mm-hmm. But uh, for you, as the kind of like pseudo new reader, what happens here? What do you think? I don't know. I truly don't know. I th- I... So in my reading, I do not understand, again, the thing that happens is that part of the plan, uh, as it's unfolded in the following chapters, is that Agilus and Agia know something about these plants that Severian does not, right? Which is that at a certain time of the night, as like as the sun sets, they effectively, again, come alive like a dog and 
attack? Mm. Is this wrong? Am I wrong about yeah, this? Yeah, this is, uh, is this is explained uh, a little bit in that next chapter when he's yes. talking with AJ Okay, and here Angelus. it is. This is almost yeah. at once he hit you in the chest and you fell. Uh, I remember seeing the leaf, a horrible thing that uh, like a flatworm made of iron, half in your body and turning red as it drank your blood. Then it fell away. I don't know how to describe it. It was though everything I had seen had been wrong, but it wasn't wrong. I remember what I saw. You got up again and looked, I don't know, as if you were lost or some part of you was far away. So that is the like, Dorcas yeah. sees him get hit. He he gets hit and then uh, like uh, two concurrent things occur, right? He He is being killed by the thing and then the thing dies mm-hmm. like those you know we, right. her description right. there two i saw two things happen right uh, and we once. don't know what yeah, to do yeah, with yeah. that uh, the other thing the the not correction but like clarification Please. i was going to make wasn't even for that part it's uh why the thing comes alive it's the it's severian's body heat right um, right right so right, right. the thing that it, this is another betrayal, you knew that right? when evening came the warmth of my hands would stimulate right. the the avern and that it right. would strike at my face you wore gloves and you only had to wait in reality yeah. you didn't even need to do that because you had thrown the leaves often before yeah it's like a sunflower right so right. it follows heat Right. And in the absence of the dying sun, uh, any amount of heat is good, right? And so it it turns towards Severian. Um, so literally, the wep- his his own weapon turns back on him uh, to face him, and we know it's got to face away from you because you know you're kind of holding it by the stem. So really, like the Avern is a big sharp sunflower, is the kind right. of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, yeah. So it's always going to be looking toward the next heat. So. Uh, even if the fight fails, right? Even if uh, Agilus, who we know is the other opponent, is the opponent, right? The Monomaki opponent. Even if he cannot kill Severian, Severian's own weapon should have killed him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it doesn't. Uh, because Severian gets hit and falls down and people are start, you know, they're like, is he dead? He got hit. <laughs> and then he, after, you know, because everyone who gets hit by Navern supposedly apparently dies and he just sits straight the hell up like a comedy thing. And it, it, it panics, you know, like morale fail here. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Agilus panics so badly that he runs away and then people try to stop him from running. And this is the most human part of the whole thing for me. This is where it goes from scam to tragedy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Is that his, his only response <sighs> because he has watched someone die and then come to life again in front of him his only response is to begin hitting the people who stop or trying to stop him with his, his Avern. I was uh, the first time I read this in the back of a taxi cab and started hooting and hollering <laughs> because it's the perfect end to this, to this fight that, mm-hmm. that it doesn't end in a clear victor in the, in the combat sense, but it does end in terrible tragedy as a half dozen people get destroyed <laughs> by the, yeah. by the Avern. It's the end of a pay-per-view wrestling match with the villain, retreating from the ring, swinging a steel chair through the crowd uh, and escaping into the, the back, trying to escape into the back alleys or the back uh, back rooms of the, of the wrestling arena, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's my man in the arena. <laughs> yeah. And, and it also like, again, as you talked about, right, it blows up everything that Severian says about, uh, about duels and monomach. Right. Right. Yes. Like, what this is the way this thing <laughs> sh- shook out? What, what are you talking about? This thing being like good or helpful or whatever, right? Someone lost and then somehow won, and the other person killed a bunch of of viewers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like w- w- this is good. This is socially good. <laughs> this is making sure the cream goes straight to the top. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, 
Um, and, and so, yeah. So, and then, you know, Agilus, because of that, is uh, destined for, for death. Mm-hmm. And Severian's the only executioner around. Yep. And, uh, right, which we shouldn't belabor this because I think we're going to get more of it as we go forward. But there's this chapter 28, Carnifex, which is basically he wakes up in a, in a you know, a, a storage room, basically, um, yeah. uh, having been brought in by some soldiers. Um, and we start to get a little a little peek at like what the war culture of of the Commonwealth is. Mm-hmm. There are these soldiers. We've talked about there being mercenaries before. Um, they go out on campaign. They have war wives that they bring with them. Women who live in the northern cities on the way up to the front against the Asians, who then stay behind and then. You know, mm-hmm. oh, when the campaign comes up again, we all kind of switch who we're sleeping with, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, it gives an offer. One of the guys says it gives an opportunity, basically, for a reset. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. if you didn't like who you were with, just get a new guy. Get a new, yeah, it's good. Uh, we're good to go. But uh, also, this, these they're explicitly called camp followers here yes, too. Yes, uh, which is a historical, real yeah. thing. Yep. You know, there there is a and. I've been doing all of this reading about the Crusades because this is Assassin's Creed book I'm working on. I ended up reading way more than I should have for like the uh-huh. two pages I'm writing about any of this stuff. Uh, but notable that a couple Crusades essentially, not completely, but uh, are consigned to failure because of this exact phenomenon. <laughs> um, that like that, that the retinue for the military just becomes too big. Right. Uh, and right. you kind of can't make the thing work anymore. And that, this is a, a common medieval European problem. We get uh, this, this. All this stuff... Yeah, yeah. it also is the, is the origin of the word camp. By the way, oh. like the the uh, over you, you know that's associated yeah, with queer camp, culture, the right? Campiness. Yeah, camp. Yeah, uh, that yes. Uh, Samuel Delaney famously uh, is angry. Even now, I believe uh, Delaney still holds on to this that uh, a camp, right? So a camp follower, the noun a camp, which was attached to a part. Someone was a camp. Uh, Sontag for the U.S. audience transformed that from a noun into a verb. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, Samuel Delaney, really big on language and its functions and how they uh, how those things work. Uh, and I don't think has ever let that go. That, that camp funny. got exploded out of its very particular subcultural usage by a transformation of the part of speech that it was. Uh, We're going to keep transforming language over here. You can keep up, Delaney. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this stuff is, I, I recently rewatched, uh, Verhoeven's Flesh and Blood. Um, mm-hmm. uh, this reminds me of that stuff, which is very much in that space or like, I mean, I'm already thinking of Berserk all the time cause that's who I am. And uh, every time that every, <laughs> every time that Wolf says that the Fulogen cloak is, you know, blacker than black, a dark, uh, that, that erases all folds. I think of, uh, Miura describing, uh, Guts's sword as being a thing too big to be called a sword, too big and too thick, too heavy. It was more like a large hunk of iron. Uh, I really want Guts and Severian to meet. Um, <laughs> this stuff feels in that sort of the campaigning, you know, European mercenary band fictional space that we're kind of dusting up against just briefly here. And my favorite detail, of course, is once they realize that Severian is the Carnifex they need, um, which they've been promised they'll, they'll, that they need because they need to kill uh, uh, Agilus now, who's been taken in as prisoner, they don't want to house, house them. Um, no one wants the torturer to live near them in the, mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. facility. And finally, they put them in a different storage room, which they sort of like give a little bit more of a of of like a, a Passover, so it's not just like the shitty storage room upstairs or whatever, right? 
Mm, or is it, where is it that they put them? They let them sleep there for the night. Yeah. I, I mean, they put them right. in like a like a bunk bed scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I just like any time that, that the fact that people have feelings about the torturers pops up is is good to me. <laughs> well, yeah. And I also like that uh, the guy who's explaining all this stuff to him just doesn't know that he's a torturer. Right. Like right. there's something about that. Right. And that, this is going to haunt us through the rest of this entire series. What does it mean to be a person of a particular type? And uh, other people don't know you are that. Mm-hmm. Right. Like th- there is a um, series of games that get played with that across these books. And one of them that's just like it buried in the bones of it. Right. Let's think all the way back to Severian and his little like um, uh, mausoleum. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I am that guy, <laughs> you know, right. like I'm looking at this like a little, uh, you know, bronze of a dude. What if I'm that dude? You know, like what if that's my ancestor? Right. Like what if I'm special and I don't know it? Uh, or no one else knows it, I guess, is more more appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's all these kinds of moments, right, that already so far of, uh, is someone the thing we think they are? Are they not the thing they think we are? Um, you know, Dr. Talos is a doctor with one patient. Mm-hmm. And as far as we know, he's really just kind of like a playwright and uh, like a performer guy, right? Is he a doctor? Or is that the thing that he is doing? Agilus has that uh, thing behind his ear. What mm-hmm. the fuck is up with that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, are these people twins or are they something else? Uh, and and some of these are unresolvable. Dorcas right? reminds someone of of his mother, and when right. confronted with this fact, begins to cry and bury her face in the mantle, and says that she doesn't remember. Yeah. Right? Is a dog a dog? <laughs> right? There, there is an indeterminacy between. Um, uh, are they really know. marrying those bears in there? <laughs> yes, they are. That's That's actually 100%. That is the key to the text. Yeah. That's how, if you want to find a kernel of truth through which you can build an edifice of fact, it is the fact that they marry (laughs) bear marriage is Wolf's answer to Le Guin's pickle barrels. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Um, But, uh, (laughs) but, but yeah, right. There is this um, lack of clarity between, um, uh, you know, object and referent or symbol and referent, I guess. Uh, there, there's the thing we name a thing and then there's what it really is. And those relations break down in all kinds of different ways. And I think, you know, I don't know if the book of the new sun is about something, you know, I think ultimately it's about Severian, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, in a pragmatic <laughs> way, but if there's something that resonates repeatedly, that's not a theme or is not a characterological trait or is not a kind of pseudo religious idea about the world, right? If there's a kind of structural resonance to it, it is this relationship between, um, you know, what is, what, what is the thing in the world and how do we speak the thing in the world, you know, between symbol and referent. Um, and we'll keep tracking that, but this is a great moment of it here. Um, and I guess we should talk about Agilus and Agia, their final scene. here. Yeah. Oh, just a, a, a little stopgap here before you get into the meat yeah, of please. it. I just want to make it clear again for people who maybe listen but don't read. So the note that was discovered at the inn uh, that was warning mm. someone uh, about something uh, resolves mm. such that uh, that note was written by someone who worked in the kitchen to someone at Severian's table saying, uh, you are my mother. Uh, don't trust the woman. She's been here before. We now know that uh, that's Asia, right? Like that 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 uh, this 
person who worked in the kitchen, whose name actually is Trudeau, um, has seen Ajia come through multiple times because she and Agilis have run the scam multiple times. And so there's like this weird letter written to Dorcas uh, that on the one hand, right, like it, it's been explained, like part of this was about Agia. And now we have this like weird question of like, why, how how on earth did someone in this inn just happen to misrecognize this person as their mother or like, you know, it, it's one of the, again, like the baffling opaqueness or uh, of the opacity of some of the things that can happen here uh, that just get shot up into the air and you just got to wait for him to come down again. Cause we will get to talk about this again. But uh, uh, I just want to make that kind of like weird little plot mechanism uh, uh, as clear as I mm. can at the moment, because in, in reading this kind of on your own, it can just be like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. And, and the book spends so much time, right? On it. You know, we get mm-hmm. a couple pages of not just baby math of like Severian trying to figure out, Okay, well, could anyone have an adult child? Right. This is where we get we get uh, uh, sorry at uh, Agia being like, or we get Severian asking Agia, "How old do you think Dorcas is?" Right. Now, how old? I'm trying to figure out all the math on this. Could either of you have a baby who works here? <laughs> yeah. Right. Basically, it's like, yeah. How old would a child have to be to both work here and write? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like. And so, so we get that, this kind of really weirdly for this book so far, in-depth pr- discussion of like the exact ages of characters and things mm-hmm. like that. And then the flip of that, the, the thing that also happens is like, okay, at this table, who would have to be sitting where to see the note where other people can't, mm-hmm. right? There's almost this like Sherlock Holmes yeah. riff going on here of like... What what is the physical space like? And again, I think that actually doesn't matter all that much. The 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 practicalities and the specifics here don't matter that much. I think this is more in the same way that uh, these other kickback references happen, right? You know, we get these single sentences that ask us to go back and reread. I think this is signaling in the text of no, actually, there are things in this book that are written in such a way that you can draw a 3D diagram of what's happening here if you want to. Um, you know, I think this is signaling of you should actually pay attention maybe to the way that to where people are sitting when I'm telling you that they're sitting in certain places or the ages of characters and how they relate to one another, that these things are going to be important. Um, and, uh, you know, notably, this was supposed to originally this is pitched as a trilogy. And the the last book blew up so big that it had to be split into two. Um, and so and the reason I mentioned that is that the the words on the page, they, they matter, right? The things that Wolf is saying matter. And this is the, the, the text itself telling us, hey, you should maybe be paying attention to the arrangements of things in the world. Yeah. Uh, uh, this final scene, what do y'all make make of the the pre-execution scene, basically? You talked about the tragedy before of, of it, the fact that it's like Agilus freaks out and flees and, you know, is, is just, you know, slamming this uh, Avern on a stick to kind of clear the way and in the process ends up killing a bunch of people. The oh, it's enti- not even on the stick at this point. It's oh, in his he hand. He it down. It's in his hand. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, right, because it's in the gauntlet, right? Yeah. Um, uh, th- that, that element of the tragedy of it all hits even harder during the stuff that we'd already talked about. They'll sort of like rules lawyering <laughs> to try to get around the execution. And 
I don't know. I don't think I'm taken in by their BS uh, necessarily, but I do think that they have it. They, they got a kind of a bad draw in life, like most people in Nessus, I, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about like, you know, again, that sword is is worth 10 times what our whole shop is. You know, uh, this was, this was yes, it's a scam. Yes, maybe they've run this scam many times, but I, I find myself sympathetic to the scammers more than to the torturer. Yeah, can I, can I just read this? Uh, so, uh, yeah, he, he goes into the cell. Ajia and Agilis are both there. They're both nude, um, both very sad. Uh, Their hair is intermingled in a way that feels cybernetic somehow. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they're they're doing an avatar. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, uh, so that th- basically they're like, uh, you know, this is this is your fault. Uh, uh, he claims the boon. That's Agilis. He's like, free me. Uh, and Severian says. How have I wronged you, Agilus? It seems to me that you have wronged me, or tried to. First, by entrapment. You carried an heirloom worth a villa about the city without knowing what it was you had. As owner, it was your duty to know, and your ignorance threatens to cost me my life tomorrow unless you free me tonight. Secondly, by refusing to entertain any offer to buy. In our commercial society, one may set one's price as high as one wishes, but to refuse to sell at any price is treason. Ajia and I wore the gaudy armor of a barbarian. You wore his heart. Thirdly, by the slight with which you won our combat, unlike you, I found myself contesting powers greater than I could comprehend. I lost my nerve as any man would, and here I am. I call on you to free me. So there's this real, like, fascinating thing that happens here, for me at least, where, um, yeah, like I, there is something like really sympathetic about them, right? It's like, how on earth, <laughs> of like of all the times that they ran this scam, right? <laughs> how and this is still scam. Like, don't get me wrong; right. they're still trying to scam their way out of this. I, 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 I am not. I don't taken. know. I don't. I don't think it is scam. I think this is real. This is scam. <laughs> I don't think this is scam. I think this is like. You uh, wronged yeah. me by by. Yeah. Mm, I think it's. I think well, it's. L- let me like, let me rephrase it. What yes. would it mean if he does believe this? Right. So that's that's right. sort of the sure. tactic sure. that I was going sure. to take is well, uh, uh, what if like, you know, what if there is genuinely some sympathy to be had here? And at the same time, what if this is truly believed by Agilus? Right. Like, what is it? Uh, mean if we have this character um, who is so wrapped up in himself or rather themselves, right? Since they form this kind of weird unit, right? There's this sense of um, uh, like, I, uh, you know, I found myself like fighting powers that were greater than I could comprehend. Uh, and that's your fault. Yeah, I killed well, you. That's it, I, right? I, I hit you with the, the <laughs> bullet that kills people. Scams <laughs> are real is, I guess, the thing for me, right? right? I oh, consider right, mids right. loud. <laughs> uh, the, this is, <laughs> this is, he lives in a world of scams uh-huh. and the our scam was overwritten. Our commercial society was overridden by supernatural weirdness. Right. Right. Um, and and so uh, this is where I'm like, it has to be a scam because scams are the material world. But that doesn't mean that it's not also convincing because all laws are scams in our commercial right. world. Right. There's a little bit of a, a, a to pull in a meme. Right. There's a little bit of a vibe here of I'm just a little guy. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Like, he is just a little guy. Like, I just I was just trying to do the thing I'm supposed to do, which is cheat people out of their precious possessions and murder them. And look what you've done. 
You've, you've thrown life and death into disarray. <laughs> yeah. I hit I you know. with the flower from the flower of disillusion. You were supposed yeah. to be dissolved. I, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm just like so much more naive on this, right? Like I, I find this so much more engaging if, if uh, Agilus is a true believer, right? That, it, that it's like, I, I mean, I, I get the point that you're making, Austin, but I, yes. like, what, what if absolute true believer and the very notion that severe i guess what i'm saying is i think that agilus thinks that severian knows more than severian yes knows, right right and yeah, so okay. because agilus kind of thinks that there is a contestation happening here between scam and uh you know counter scammer right, right he thinks right he thinks severian is scamming him about right. the nature of reality <laughs> right right oh oh you're telling me you don't know you're carrying around like uh, you know uh, <laughs> Uh, a 1,000 GP sword. You seriously uh, expect me to believe that? (laughs) Right. And, and and so because of that, because you're being such a shit to me, you owe me, right? Like I was not equivalent in our scam V scam scenario. And also you like came back to life after I killed you. You know, I don't know. I, I find that I find the idea that we, that it is a, science fiction fantasy melange world, right? That we're getting all of this, you know, the 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 towers are rocket ships, right? And yet there is a folk capitalist law that can mm-hmm. be invoked here mm-hmm. that is at least legitimate in the eyes of the invoker, right? I, I find that a really nice counterpoint to all that other stuff, right? Like there's Father Neary in his mirrors and then there are the honor-bound laws of common folk <laughs> And those things coexist at the same time. The, these people are like little Shire goblins, you know, <laughs> compared to the Gandalf of uh, the Autark and Father Neri, right? And this is that kind of thing, uh, you know, those two worlds smashing into one another. And at the end of the day, right, like power wields over power, right? The police and then Severian are going to kill this guy. There's no yeah. way out mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. Uh, it's not entertainable as actual real world stuff. Um and she tries to do what she can too. She tries to have sex with Severian, mm-hmm. right? To to get advantage over him to then maybe kill him, you know. Worth saying she tries to do that after he once again brings up Thecla. Yeah. Cuz cuz immediately after what you read before Michael, it says laughter came unwished for, carrying with it the taste of gall. You're asking me to do for you, whom I have every reason to despise, what I wouldn't do for Thecla, whom I loved almost more than my own life. No, right. I'm a, uh, I'm a fool, and if I was not one before, surely your darling sister has made one of me, but not such a fool as that. And then Adji's response to that is to be like, all right, well, look, my brother will t- turn and look away, we can have sex, and then we can get out of here. You know, Severian's what an absolute shit. <laughs> uh-huh. like, like the way, and also he did do that for Thek. Right? <laughs> yes. Like that was kind of an important thing. Right. He didn't let her escape, right? But he did give her the out. In his own narrative, you know, in his own telling of the story, he gave her the out that was better than tearing her own tongue out and her eyes out or whatever, right? With her own bare hands. Um, And, uh, you know, can't imagine that here. Can't imagine doing that for uh, Aegean Agilis. Uh, He does, listen, he does ask Agilis uh, whether he cares whether or not he looks... uh, uh, you know, embarrassing up on the up on the scaffold when he's going right. to be executed. He, you know, he's going to give him the dignity mm-hmm. of a good, clean death, or at least convince him he'll have one. Uh, yeah, and he also tricks him, right? Like the, the final thing he says to him yeah. is trickery, right? Right. There's a, a what is it? They they 
they are trained to like give uh, a false count or something so that the, yeah. the person thinks they yeah. know when the blade is going to drop, but actually the executioner is going to drop it like one second for, uh, uh, earlier or later or something. Yeah, I'm going to do it on the count of five mm-hmm. and on three, you strike their head from their body. Mm-hmm. Again, undercutting like the entire thing, which which we've we, was the center of uh, Severian's banishment, which is you're not allowed to give people any sort of ease that hasn't mm-hmm. been written into their sentence by the altar who sent them to you, right? right. Or whoever sent them to you, I guess. Um, uh, and they're like, no, actually, we actually have this core rule <laughs> that's about. <laughs> yeah. Um, when we kill people, we we give them a little bit of of a white lie so that they're not quite uh, as tense as they would be otherwise. Mm-hmm. And again, it resonates with the whole thing, right? Uh, why, if Severian's professional relationship to his client, right? I mean, I guess I unclear if if uh, outside the tower people are clients or not, but this is happening in that relationship too. It seems it's part of the training. If the relationship between that is authority and subservience, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, dominator and dominated. And the dominator in doing what they think is best for the dominated can lie to them. What does that mean for an autark to talk to an audience member, right? To talk to us mm-hmm. as people reading this book. Um, the, the thing that is going to explain how he backs into the throne, right? Is it okay to white lie to us? Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows? Hard, hard to know. And again, right, not to solve it, but that's an, that is a productive ambiguity to think through, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as simple as Severian lies. It's Severian gives us information and we have to figure out what we want to do with it. And then, and then not to put too fine of a point on it, but, but again, uh, he hits, he not just hits, um, Aji here, he throws her into the wall head first. Mm-hmm. He like pushes yep. her violently against the wall so that her head snaps against, against the stone. Uh, I talked last time about the emergence of a kind of cold and cruel, uh, uh, Severian. And, mm-hmm. and here we see it again. Um, uh, it happens often that he slips into this depiction of himself as being deeply unsympathetic to anybody else, um, cruel in indifference, you know, Uh, and and letting himself be that person, a a violent person who not only lords his physical power over them, um, but does it in a way that's almost uh, uh, not unaimed, but I do think this is a particular, particular distaste and anger in this moment, but he renders it as if it were emotionless, right? Um, mm-hmm. he, I pushed her away, uh, not into a chair this time, but against the wall. Um, I slapped at her wrist perhaps harder than I should, and she flew at me. Like, when he describes this stuff, it, he's not like, he doesn't talk about what his what his he's thinking. He, he describes himself like he's describing a robot. You know, mm-hmm. um, and whether that's true or not is up for us to, to decide. But he he will continue to do this, you know, to, to render himself this sort of like, oh, yeah. And then my body did this stuff Then I then I threw her against the wall. Then, then, you know, I threw her against the wall um, uh, as if he has no choice in the, in the matter, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, if he didn't want us to know about it, if he were ashamed of it or right. or whatever, right. it wouldn't be here. You know, right. it would uh, just show would, up six chapters later when he slips right. up and mentions it. <laughs> Right. Or he would tell us he was ashamed of mm-hmm. it, right? right? There are plenty of yes. places here where Severian has has told us something that he is not proud of and then told us how he felt about it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not here. There, there's none of that here. He matter-of-factly tells you about him 
um, you know, uh, punching her, hitting her, knocking her down. That happens in a few different places. And even before that, I think in the reading for last episode, he talks about how he wanted to hit her at one point mm-hmm. and chooses not to, right? He's got no compunction about, uh, you know, beating this woman uh, and also has no real emotion about it one way or the other. It's just a thing he does. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, he leaves. And when he leaves, uh, uh, you know, Agia flees at this point, taking some some coins that he's thrown at her. Um, and when when I leave, when I left him, the aura chalk was gone in its place with no doubt uh, and no doubt with its edge. A design had been scratched on the filthy stones. It might have been the snarling face of Juapari or perhaps a map. And it was wreathed with letters I did not know. I rubbed it away with my foot. She's hexed him. Something. And took his money. <laughs> and took his money. Yeah. It's good. It's good. Next time we're finishing the book. Yep. So it's, yeah, from 30 through the end, through the... Mm-hmm. Appendix. The appendix. Mm-hmm. There's a little one-page appendix, but we'll be doing that. We'll be finishing the book, and we'll be using the kind of finishing the book... Um, I, I, I've split this off. Basically, the rest of the books in this series... We will do over three episodes each, so the the read will be a little bit more. The reason I chose to do that is that the I wanted to spend a little bit more time on the first six or so, you know, um, chapters because we needed some time to get you know accustomed to the world and talk about all the kind of stuff. And I've given us a little bit more here at the end, too, in the fourth episode, in the next episode, so that we can talk about the reception of the book a little bit. I, Michael, I know that you have done some digging to figure out, you know, what did um, science fiction fantasy people have to say about this? What did broader publics have to say about this? We're probably not going to do that for every book, but I think it is helpful to figure out, like, where did this land mm-hmm. and how did people take it for this big, uh, what is now treated as a big classic in science fiction fantasy at the time, did people know that it was a big classic or whatever? Or how did they feel yeah. about it? So we'll we'll do that, and then we'll do a little bit of, I would say, like suturing up, big idea, talking, things like that. Figuring out where we stand, and then the rest of the books we will do in three episodes each. Mm-hmm. Yep, no, we'll do that. And um, actually, one thing I want to say now, just to so you, maybe the listener mm-hmm. can think about it. Uh, the it, the reviews for this these books are really weird because they are published from 1980 to 1983 at like a real clip. So even the mm. earliest reviews for the first book are talking about the later books. These all get released in very short order. And so, uh, you know, we call this the show about the book of the new sun or the season about the book of the new sun. And already at the start, people are, uh, uh, I think, locking these together as kind of a sequence in their heads. Mm-hmm. So makes sense. Awesome. If you want bonus episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch. Uh, the first bo- bonus episode on uh, Ralph Bakshi's The uh, Lord of the Rings from 1978 is already up. You can go check that thing out. And uh, I think it, one week from today, if I've got it right in my head, let me check to make sure that is the case. One week from today, so next week, uh, our bonus episode on 1982's Conan the Barbarian is coming out. Uh, and I believe that Danny is going to join us for that episode. So, uh, as, because he's a huge Conan the Barbarian fan, he loves to talk about what's best in life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, and also famously plays a barbarian. Oh, one important thing that you probably want to know about. 
we will in the future be having brief Q&A sessions on this show. And if you have any questions for us about anything that we've said on the show thus far, questions generally about Book of the New Sun uh, and what's going on there that uh, we can get into based on where we are and actually are reading, uh, you can send those questions to us and we will pick some and answer them on air. Uh, the email address you should send those questions to then questioned by genre at gmail.com that's just a uh, uh, all one uh, uh, thing smashed together those three words questioned by genre at gmail.com so uh yeah so we'll be up on that i think people are really enjoyed we got a lot of great feedback on the first bonus episode so you should go and check it out right now and i think i'm gonna work i'm gonna work on these uh these uh, two fellows here to maybe get an additional bonus episode or two out of them i'm gonna I'm gonna pitch them on them after <laughs> After this is done, but uh, yeah, my silence so at the beginning already. of that, at the beginning of the episode, mm -hmm. you mentioned that my silence was not because I am angry about doing another bonus episode. It was more like, when does that release? Yeah, that's my oh, question. Yeah. But I'm fine. Can you gotta explain I'm the ca calendar to us? Ooh, I'm, I'm going to explain the whole calendar. Perhaps Ooh. in the mirror, Ooh. it has already been released. And <laughs> that's what right. we need to do is simply align it such to receive the other side of it, you know? <laughs> Are you ready to do mirror math later in these books? Fuck. <laughs> have, you, have you thought that maybe uh, the ambiguity of the mirrors uh, paired with Severian's age math, that those two things might meet one another at some point later uh, in the books and, and you would be forced to have to do that on your own? Oh, my friend, I will simply pull the same thing I did with the language before and say the math is meant to be evocative. <laughs> and it's the process of doing the math that, that uh, you know, has to be, you don't have to do it. You have to feel like you couldn't do it. That's the effect Wolf is really chasing after. Mm-hmm. I'll sell ice in the winter, you know? Yeah, that's how math works. It's mm -hmm. just all evocation mm -hmm. and, and conceptually. Anyway, we'll be back in uh, two weeks with uh, or, uh, the bonus episode will come out in one week, and we'll be back in two weeks with the mainline episode that finishes up this book. Uh, so if you're reading along, you can go ahead and finish the thing up, and we're going to talk about all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and get ready for Claw the Conciliator, um, which is the next book. So thanks so much for listening, and for Austin and Michael, that's the end of the episode. This episode was edited by Jordan Mallory. The theme song was composed and performed by Cinderwell, and the podcast art was by Sam Beck. Michael, you want to take us out? Uh, amid these stacks so tall and dim with tomes lined end to end, how are you to find your way? It's shelved by genre, friend. Uh.